Jimmy, it's Angel. It's 12.15 and make, make it 12.17. I'm going to work for your bud, Pat Doherty. He's got some DMV issues. Needs a driver. And, and I guess what uh, I'm saying is I quit. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show and the 90s TV movies, The Rockford Files. <laughs> I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And as you might imagine from well, the title of this episode and also uh, how I just phrased it, we are doing the sixth, 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 the number weird word. That's a, <laughs> it's a, now that I say it out loud, <laughs> what a strange word. This is indeed number six of the eight 90s television movies made of The Rockford Files. Yeah. And I got to say, I didn't think we were this far along. For some reason in my head, I was like, oh, we're kind of in the middle. But uh, yeah. when we look back at it, yeah, we've done five of these. And this is, well, the sixth. In the ongoing drama of does Epi pull out the correct DVD mm. from the sleeve in the first shot? Same thing. I missed it. Uh, by a long shot, because I, I assumed it was on disc two of the first two disc set. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I had the same thing. I uh, Also, um, IMDb has a little bit of an inaccuracy here. Mm. It claims that it's two hours long. Mm. It's about an hour and a half long. Yeah, it's a it's a two hour TV slot. Yeah. So it's two hours with commercials, but the yeah. runtime is, yeah, 132 or whatever it is. Uh, that, that completely tempered almost all of my notes because <laughs> I, I'm, I am watching the clock as I'm doing it mm-hmm. and thinking, how are they going to get more show out of this? In its runtime, it's actually, I think, very well paced. Yeah, yeah, it's very well paced. If there I'm, was an I'm, extra half hour that we needed, it would be a little rough. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so this one is titled Punishment and Crime mm-hmm. um, and was released uh, in September of 1996. So a good, what? 20 years after the, the, the mint, not the peak, not the end, but like we're about 20 years after the original show is the timeline for these movies. I don't think we've done a movie in a minute. Uh, so it's been a while. Yeah. If you have joined us since the last time we did a movie, um, uh, the, the brief background on these is that, uh, you know, the show ended with some, um, unpleasantness and some litigation between Garner and his production studio and Universal and their situation. Um, it eventually got settled, uh, I think in the eighties, but Garner kind of harbored a grudge and didn't want to do Universal slash NBC related projects for a while. Uh, but in kind of the early nineties, there was this, there was kind of a movement of kind of like bringing, I think this is just Kurt. This is just how culture works now. Things mm-hmm. that were popular 20 years ago. Let's do them again. Yes. You know, and there were some, some concepts for doing these instead of rebooting the show, doing these, uh, two hour movies, they ended up at CBS. So these movies all aired on CBS in the nineties. And there's a, you know, there's some like fun details about what, when they were time slotted and against what and whatever that's all in the ed robertson book um 30 years or the new edition 40 years of the rockford files (laughs) if you're super interested but uh my my takeaway the top line on it was kind of like so cbs uh uh, contracted six movies Mm -hmm. the first two two to three like did fine but not great and then after that they were kind of relegated to worse time slots Ugh. But this also coincided with the movies being more interesting movies. So like mm-hmm. the more basic, straightforward 
campier, I would say, movies were probably the most seen. And then as they got more, yeah, as yeah. they got better, <laughs> they actually slid into worse time slots. That's a, a fairly common phenomenon. It's hard to tell. Uh, I, I don't know if there's there's an actual answer to this, but it's often hard to tell which caused which. Because right, sometimes right. if you don't have that many eyes on it, you're like, well, I could do whatever I want. Now, let's do this thing, you know, or uh, let's try this weird thing that we weren't. And it, it's a bit of a mirror of the show where, like, the first season was really popular. The second season, we've talked about it when we talked about the second season, but it was like some of the writing got a little shakier and also the viewership fell off. So which one caused which? Right. And in the third season, they kind of, like, corrected and kind of captured some of the original, you know, conception of the character again. And then it, the show got, like, really good uh, critically started getting Emmys and stuff in like mm -hmm. the fourth season. Right. Yeah. So, but it never recovered those viewership figures from the first season. Uh, so kind of similar with the movies. And so some of that slide also, the way that it sounds from how it's written up in, in Ed Robertson's book is that like CBS like had these movies, but kind of didn't care about them mm -hmm. or didn't really know what the best thing to do with them was. Yeah, yeah, so they started them. getting paced out increasingly stretched out increasingly between when each was released. Oh, so they like they they'd done them all in a chunk mm -hmm. and then oh, okay. So like this movie was completed in the spring of 95 mm -hmm. and then they didn't air it until the fall of 96. Got it. After this movie, they picked up they I guess they had an option. They picked up two more movies because there's eight total. Yeah. The last one uh, the, the return of Rita Kapkovic, uh, Rita Moreno, I think was shot in 97. It wasn't released till, or shot in 96. It wasn't released till 99 or something like that. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. There's some weird time, time stuff there. So that all said, um, this particular movie was in like premiere week as well. Oh, okay. They, so CBS put it in. <laughs> I just thought this was kind of fun. I feel like this captures a moment in time. This is a moment in time where I'm starting to become aware of television, like right, right, <laughs> temporarily, right. Like I'm mm -hmm. watching, like my parents have stuff on, and I actually like watch it or notice it. So this movie, The Rockford Files: Punishment and Crime, is going up against the season premiere of Grace Under Fire, <laughs> the season premiere of The Drew Carey Show, and in its second hour, the season premiere of Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> the, the season premiere, not the the. Not the series. I mean, I don't yeah, think yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is like the start of the. So television used to have seasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that that is definitely a, a tough crowd to. Th those are very popular shows mm -hmm. at that time. So, yeah. Yeah. So contrast with the first movie where it was put on a Sunday night after mm -hmm. um, Murder, She Wrote. Right, right where so yeah, that yeah. was led into by you know kind of a similar yeah. demographic was the idea you, you would you would just leave it on right you, you would you, murder Street would end and then you would suddenly hear the Rockford bow, bow. team and, and you're thinking bow, bow, bow. Oh, i'm just gonna sit down i'm just gonna <laughs> just gonna just uh not even touch that dial right so this one is instead on a wednesday night against these you know network you know comedies yeah that said it was uh it did have higher viewership than the same, you know, than the movie they had done last time. Like whatever oh, okay. the, la the fifth one was, uh, uh, friends and foul play. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Good for them. I suppose, uh, this, uh, this movie is written and directed and produced as there's a great title yes. card <laughs> written, directed and produced by David chase. And some elements in here that you really 
are yes. really, <laughs> really chaserific uh, in a good way. But Chasian, Chasian, Chasesque, Chasesque. We got We got to come up with a good one for that mm-hmm. one. But that's kind of exciting. This is much closer to you know Sopranos time. Yeah. Right. So uh, it's kind of fun to see some of those, some of that language being still being worked on, worked yeah. out here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much all my preamble, and there's no preview montage. What's up? What What are your thoughts <laughs> going into the movie, Epi? Well, I have to I have to confess my ignorance here because uh, I have not read uh, nor ingested in any form crime and punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and IMDb says that uh, Dostoevsky has an uncredited <laughs> uh, writing uh, credit for the yeah, novel. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that was automatically added uh, just because the title is Punishment and Crime. I would assume that if there was anything in particular other than just having a fun title and Russia, right? Like, yeah, yeah. This has to deal with Russian like bad guys. So yeah. there's that connection. I also have not read Crime and Punishment. Uh, I might have done like a, like a Cliff's Notes of it in high school at some point. I have no idea if the plot... Or if there's any other references. I will say that the original title for this one was Night Fishing. So See that all right. <laughs> and that fits a there's a moment in there. Mm-hmm. One of the loneliest, saddest moments of the mm. episode. You could certainly you I'm I'm just reading the um IMDB uh, uh-huh. summary here. You could certainly draw some uh there's definitely a high school paper in here that you could do. <laughs> uh against both i shouldn't say high school there's there's you could definitely do some some good some good academic work on this but i don't think it's um i I don't think that there's i feel i forget if we used this term while we talked about the our last episode i i I did when i was um, writing it up for the patreon but uh this one uh is a rich text yeah there's (laughs) there's a lot going on on a couple different layers some of which is interesting, some of which we probably don't really need to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only a, 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 uh, a film or, or television critique a bull piece here. Yeah. And if it happens to also interrelate with literary themes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I am not qualified to say, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's something in there. And we should comment that we, um, or maybe we'll get into it when we get into it, mm-hmm. as we as we are want to say. But this is the third, uh, if we're considering it an episode rather than a movie, sure. this is the third and I believe final episode uh, with a character who we have not covered mm-hmm. yet, despite the fact that odds are we should have covered <laughs> her, yes. uh, given how many episodes we've done. Um but uh, yeah, we'll talk about that when that yes. comes up. But that's yeah. uh, that's going to be kind of interesting. Yeah, back a bit core core to this one. So mm-hmm. for sure. Hey, Epi, did you know that we are a one hundred percent listener supported show? I did not know that. Wait, I, I did. I did. <laughs> and it is because of our patrons over mm-hmm. at patreon.com slash two hundred a day. In addition to our gratitude, patrons also receive exclusive episode previews and plus expenses. Oh, that is the podcast before the podcast. And that's where we talk about other stuff going on in our lives mm-hmm. and games and movies and all kinds of things. Yeah. We extend special thanks to our gumshoe patrons supporting this episode of 200 a day. 
Join Mitch Hampton to examine all matters aesthetic and what it means to be human at the Journey of an Aesthete podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Dale Norwood wrote a book. Find Trading Freedom, How Trade with China Defined Early America, wherever good books are sold. It's about fast ships, cheap drugs, and American political economy. Chuck from whatyoureading.com. Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops, Serial Killers of Color at fruitloopspod.com. Shane Liebling, his site rollforyear.party, has all of your online dice rolling needs. Jay Adon, check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Pumpkin Jabba Peach Pug, Dave P., Dave Otterson, Kip Holly, and Dale Church. And finally, we can't thank our detective patrons enough for their generous support of the show. Joe Greathead, Michael Zalisco, Eric Antenor at Antenor on Twitter, Brian Pereira at Thermoware, Jordan Bockelman, not Brockelman, at Jordan Bockelman, Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. If you're interested in helping keeping us going, you can do so for as little as a dollar an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. Thank you. Thanks so much. As is tradition for our movies, we start off with the the greatest question of all, what is this 90s version of the theme going to sound like? Uh, my first note here is such a nice soulful theme to open on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're going to get a melancholy tale here, I think. Yeah. Uh, or at least that's that's how they're bringing us in. This one, yeah, this theme is lower key than I remember the other ones being. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have quite so much explosive synth yeah. going on. <laughs> this, I feel like I probably said this about the last one as well, but there's something about this, these, the latter half of these movies where the characters seem more similar to the 70s characters, like right. physically. Like in the first couple of movies, like Jim had like the little mullet and like yeah, yeah, like you know, attempt to get nineties. There's there are um, references throughout mm-hmm. to the nineties, yeah, uh, which is interesting because you because uh, you said that like this one was only held for about a year, yeah. But w- when you talked about the one that went from like ninety six to ninety nine, if it had references as topical as this one right <laughs> it would be out of date by the time it got released and i mean they've all they all have been doing i think uh doing their best to fix themselves in time mm-hmm. i mean the first movie i i just love la or i still love la is very specifically like here are all the things going in los angeles right now yes. <laughs> right it's like the riots and there's uh, and the fire there's it's all kinds of stuff for some reason this one felt more chill about it like the references seemed more like references people would actually make as opposed to we need this in the script so that viewers will know we know we're in the 90s now yes yes (laughs) all right that all said we should get talking about this movie um we have our credits rolling over uh james scott rockford uh he he's on like some kind of campus and going into a a kind of an academic e building i think there's a sign that says it's the neuropsychiatric institute mm-hmm. we track him as he's waiting for an elevator the elevator opens he sees mm-hmm. a woman is obviously startled she mm-hmm. stares right past him walks past him and then we we kind of cut out to see that she has a seeing eye dog 
So her looking past him is because she is blind, not because mm-hmm. she's ignoring him. I and I having read the summary and remembering that this character exists, I'm like, oh, okay. So we're starting right off with this is Megan Doherty, uh, Megan Doherty Adams in in this movie because she's mm-hmm. uh, married and you know added a name. Uh, and we will come back to her very soon. But our establishing shot gives Jim ran into this person. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. I mean, it's very clear that uh, he recognizes her. Right. Because we haven't done the episodes with her in it. Uh, I did not. And so my notes are de- like, does Jim know? Her? <laughs> There's a certain portent on this that makes it feel like if you're a fan, you would recognize her as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is interesting. So I remember the character and I vaguely remember the episodes that she was in mm-hmm. um, before we were recording you indicated that you did not connect this person to yeah. an earlier character that we'd seen yeah, or that yeah. you'd seen. Yeah. And so uh, I just assumed it was uh, um, the further adventures that take right, place right. between 76 mm. no, mm. and 96. Mm. So during those uh, 18 years. So, yeah, I guess so on the so so on a meta level, I'm I'm this whole movie I'm kind of like, oh, it'll be interesting to go back and see what their yeah. deal was in the show while you're watching it with kind of the fresh eyes of like right. this is a character in the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything I know I'm being told by the screen, right? I feel it's it's going to hold up. Mm-hmm. I don't I I'm not missing any details. Yeah, and I don't really remember anything in particular where I was like, oh, that's a callback to this thing or whatever. Yeah. Like, I think the movie is meant to be standalone and meant to give you everything you need to know. But, uh, yeah, that's an interesting perspective for us to bring as Rockford viewers, both of us being yes. like, I don't really remember this character. <laughs> we do cut from here to uh, one of the other highlights of our show, Angel, um, yes. power washing Jim's trailer right off the bat hitting all their beats with uh, uh, the the banter between the two of them. The deal is that Angel is working off an IOU <laughs> by cleaning Jim's trailer while he's out and about. Um, Jim is giving him all these very specific instructions about what he's supposed to do and how he's supposed to do it. And Angel is, uh, uh, you know, reluctantly doing what he's he's being told to do. And I guess the the IOU came from he needed some kind of dental work. And what was he supposed to do? Just let the teeth rot rot in your head or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I realized that if I tried to note all of the good banter between these two, that would be my entire viewing. So I had to hold off, but uh, it's good. Yeah, I mean, you just watch Angel justified getting the money, like... Uh, and try and get out of all the work that he's he's been told to do. It's also fun to see, like, just uh, well, first of all, it's fun to see Angel doing manual labor. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the the continual improvements on um, the trailer. Mm-hmm. The trailer is kind of an interesting beast in this episode because uh, I mean we've talked about it before in the movies. It's bigger. Yeah, I can't imagine it being ever being moved. Right, right. It's really expanded out. There's like multiple rooms. There's a deck. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a really nice deck too. Like mm-hmm. it's it, it's, and inside it's really nice. Um, but this particular section that Angel's working on, uh, needs work. Yeah, really yeah. needs work. <laughs> that's also, I think that's fun too. It's got this sort of updated, but the old is still jammed into it. And yeah, yeah. 
Inside, Jim grabs a phone book. I noted his uh, strong look in his corduroy jacket Yes, um, <laughs> in this shot for some reason. He looks up a phone number, makes a phone call, asks for Megan. Um, mm-hmm. And the person who answered the phone uh, says, you know, hey, mom, it's for you. <laughs> and she answers and says, it's Jim Rockford. So he is indeed reconnecting with uh, Megan Doherty. Their conversation gives us the context, you know, for their their deal. So uh, the last time they talked was 15 years ago. She and she married uh, a man named Michael. They moved to Atlanta. Well, now she's back, obviously, you know, and divorced. And Jim's like, oh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Again, canonically, Jim got married at some point in the 80s and they got mm-hmm. divorced as we have learned in previous movies. Um, he was on campus for a job that he didn't get, uh, but he that's why he saw her. That, he's calling because he saw her. And I right. think he says, like, I was so stunned I couldn't say anything. Yes. <laughs> but she says it would be nice to see him again and invites him to her father's birthday party that weekend in Santa Barbara. We have a bit of a hemming and a hawing. And then Jim looks at the black and white picture of Rocky yeah. uh, on his table and it goes... Oh, okay. Yeah, poor Rocky. Poor Rocky. Well, again, canonically, uh, Noah Barry had died um, before the first movie was made, and they have a nice little tribute to him in that. Um, since then, Jim's connection to Rocky does come up in most of the, you know, in most of these yeah, movies. Yeah, He has this picture. I don't know if it's the same picture in every movie. In this one, it's a great one of, of, of Rocky with his pipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jim often looks through the picture of Rocky for kind of like these moments of like getting good advice or yeah. deciding what he should do. This is an interesting um, uh, thing. We don't have a conversation with Rocky, obviously, because he's not no longer with us, but Jim takes this moment to look at it. He looks at the picture of Rocky. Originally I thought um, because she just before then says they're having a, a party birthday party for her dad. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was like, Oh, just that, like my dad's no longer here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a reminder of that. But well, later on, we we learned that Rocky really liked her. Right. Jim might be trying to decide at this point: does he want to get reinvolved in an mm-hmm. old situation? Like, is this a good thing to do? And Rocky's advice would would be yes. almost certainly be <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we could it could be read both ways, and I like that. To the birthday party at the the Doherty. It's not really an estate, but it's a very fancy yeah. house in Santa Barbara. And we meet Frank Doherty, Megan's dad. So this is one of those times where I was like, I have, where I was like, I have an immediate reaction to this guy. I must right. know him from somewhere, but I cannot remember where. Uh, the actor is Richard Kylie, and I was like, okay. So obviously, my first go to is he must have been in a Rockford Files, um, and I he was not in any of them. But looking through his credits, I was like, oh, he is a Columbo villain. Ah. <laughs> he plays the police commissioner in the episode where he helps his buddy cover up the murder of the buddy's wife and then later uses that to blackmail him into helping the commissioner murder his own wife. It's a wow. very complex double murder situation and it has one of the best I think one of the most would hold up in court Columbo reveals uh, of of the whole series, uh, in my opinion. So anyway, he's, he's really a bad guy in that episode. So I, you know, see him mm-hmm. in this and he has this really specific kind of manner of in how he speaks. So that immediately like 
because he's obviously older and everything. So I immediately, like, I was like, oh, this guy. Um, <laughs> he, I mean, like, he has the look of a Columbo villain. Mm-hmm. I have not seen that Columbo episode, or if I have, I don't remember it. But I, if you were, if you were to line up three people right. from this show and be like, which one's the Columbo villain? I mean, imagine him twenty years younger with a black goatee. Yeah. Oh, geez. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, he is apparently the voice of the tour guide in Jurassic Park. I, you know, I was just scanning. I saw that he was the voice of the tour guide. I also saw that he was the voice of the cosmos in the Howard the Duck film. Oh, mm-hmm. well, he does have a distinctive voice. Yeah, a yeah. very cosmopolitan voice here. So next time I watch Jurassic Park, I'll be like, oh, that guy is a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> and next time I watch Howard the Duck, I'll think the same thing. That's our generational divide. Right. <laughs> There's a great line. Uh, he's like, Jim, you know, hasn't seen him for 15 years or whatever, right? Yeah. I bet the Reagan years were good for you, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like all those financial crimes. <laughs> yeah. All the SNL scandals. And yeah, yeah. Which is very funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To me. <laughs> you know, all the crimes. You must have done great. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen a couple SNL specials. The S and L. Not, not Saturday Night Live, but Savings and Loan uh, investigations that Rockford did. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, like, those were rich and powerful people uh, stealing the money of uh, people who really needed it, who yeah. who needed the money. And so it, it it's exactly the kind of episode uh, that you would want to see mm-hmm. in a Rockford Files, right? Like, you, you, you want to see Jim on the tail of those. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the picture we get here, so... Uh, Frank, he had some kind of big deal talent agency, but he sold it off. Now he's enjoying his retirement, more or less. We do see a moment of him being a real jerk to a server yeah. who didn't bring someone enough limes. So mm-hmm. I think we're getting a very distinctive, like, look at this guy's personality, right? Again, both a, a good Columbo villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we are getting the class stuff that we love to see in the Rockford Files. They uh, come around to Megan with the official reintroduction. They have a nice <laughs> hug, and Megan introduces Jim around. They have various; she has various sisters and other relatives, etc. And then enter a I say young. <laughs> I guess technically he's middle aged at this point, but uh, in context to my knowledge of him, a young Brian Cranston. Yeah, as cousin Patrick. I meant to look it up. I, this would have been his Malcolm in the Middle years, right? Like, I think it was or... before then. And I only say that because I was... Oh, you're right. Yeah. Because Liz said, is that Brian Cranston? And I said, yes. <laughs> this is 1995. <laughs> and she said, oh, that's even before Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's how I know. But they established... Later, they established that his character is like 43 or something. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I don't know how old he actually is, but that seems about right. He's... He acts younger because he's a, a a layabout, but right, yeah, yeah, he's a cad, he's a rake. So yeah, it's it's kind of fun. Yeah, it is. I mean, so I'm not a huge Cranston head. Um, you you're know, not one of not one of the Cranstonites. I'm not, not a Cranstonite. <laughs> Cranstonian. I have not. I still have not watched Breaking Bad. I don't have a whole lot to say about him as like over his career, but uh, he's good in this in this episode. Yeah, and I like Malcolm in the Middle. So he's good in the first, second, third. No, the first of the most recent American Godzilla films. I, <laughs> I, I realized that it wasn't the first American Godzilla film, and then I realized it wasn't the second because. Uh huh. Go on. The very first Godzilla film from the 1950s 
uh, there's an American version with Raymond Burr in it because you have to have like a an, an American mm-hmm. at the forefront in order for American audiences to enjoy it. And so that's technically the first American Godzilla film. And then there's a second one with Raymond Burr in it in 1985, which was the same film as the Japanese reboot in 1985 uh, that they shoved Raymond Burr into again against some really very bad American actors, which is fun. Then there's the the Godzilla um, iguana one um, with a. Uh, why am I going? Never mind. Anyways, the point is. No, I'm I'm listening. <laughs> the, then there's the the Godzilla one that. Uh, what is his name? Uh, Ferris Bueller. Who's Ferris Bueller? Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. There's the Matthew Broderick Godzilla film, uh, and then there's uh, the the more recent run of Godzilla films that uh, Brian Cranston was in the first one of that, and he was quite good. That's all I'm getting at. That's all I'm saying. Was that the one in 2000? The one that had the good soundtrack? Well, yeah. good. Or not 2000. 2000 is the... You mean the the um, Matthew Broderick one was the one in 2000? Was that the one in 2000? Yeah. It was It was during peak movie soundtrack where like you yeah. hear radio singles from movie soundtracks from like... I forget who was on that one, but like from like Aerosmith or like Metallica. Rage Against the Machine was on that one. Yeah, and they, yeah, yeah. Their song on it was... Uh, an indictment of America, uh, and um, they specifically called out Godzilla as like uh, I can't remember how how they do it, but like yeah, they specifically are like you're 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 being distracted by Godzilla, the real monster is America, which is great. Okay, I'm sorry, that was '98. Why did I think that was in 2000? It looks like it's from 2000. Yeah, I mean, like it's around then. Oh my gosh! Wow. Brian Cranston's the one from like five years ago or or eight years ago or 20 years ago. I don't know. I don't know what time is anymore. Yeah. So the Godzilla film I'm talking about came out in 2014, nine years ago. Ooh. Well, now that we've gone on that journey. Um, Welcome to 200 Stories Tall, the Godzilla podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There we go. We've officially found our follow up <laughs> podcast. Um Patrick, cousin Patrick, uh, he is again, uh, he's immediately introduced to us. I mean, he seems already drunk. Um, he introduces his girlfriend, Molly around very perfunctorily, Mm -hmm. like say hi to everyone, Molly, say bye to everyone, Molly. Um, (laughs) and when he is introduced to Jim, he refers, refers to Jim as Megan's road less traveled. Yes. Murmur, 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 murmur. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll, we'll get more Patrick later. Uh, my note at this moment is like, I, I'm pretty sure Pat is going to be the focus of the problem here. <laughs> like, whatever the problem is. Yeah. Whatever it is. Um, we go to Jim and Megan, uh, catching up. She asks about Rocky and he says that he was always a major fan of yours. Yeah. Um, we get introduced to uh, Megan's kids. Um, she has a young teen son and slightly uh, younger daughter. Um, they do kid stuff. I felt like the kids were very kid like. Yeah, they were. I think they were pretty good. Like um, there was an a, a ongoing thing. One of the kids was afraid of leeches. The kids are part of Megan's story. Yeah, right. Like they kind of come in and out as. I wasn't going to say as, I was going to say as props, but that's not the right term. Like, yeah, they're they're part of her character, right? So, yeah. you know, we we get a lot of the lens of Megan's life through how other people interact with her kids and how her kids interact with her. Mm-hmm. And I guess just in contrast, I think specifically to the last movie where I remember feeling like the younger characters were, I think they were mostly college students, right? But like they were written like idiots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in my opinion. Uh, I feel like these these kids felt very like 
yeah they act they're acting like age appropriate yeah you know, yeah uh kids um so anyway so they kind of come in and out right they come in they want their mom's attention for something you know he calls his sister a dork and they he leaves goes out again you know that kind of stuff this uh, uh transitions into um the toast portion of the afternoon because oh, it's still yeah. afternoon Patrick has an open bottle of tequila just sitting in front of him at the table and is pouring himself shots and then gets up to make a toast to Frank, which uh, my note is that he's irreverent at best, uh, Mm -hmm. slightly insulting. He is obviously drunk, um, but then he kind of ends on like a kind of like a sweet note. Yeah. We learn through this toast that his uh, his dad died and Frank was kind of, you know, stepped in. Mm-hmm. And took care of him when no one else would. And so we have that kind of nice note at the end of the whole the whole thing. The toast is a really good... Um, it gives us all we're going to need to know about uh, Patrick, right? Hey, sorry, I keep checking what his name is because mm-hmm. in my notes he's Brian Cranston <laughs> every time. But because um, we know... Okay, so we know he's a bit of a jerk. And the toast starts off that way. We're cringing already. Uh, but because of this tender ending, right? And also, like, he does reveal kind of the the meat of the relationship that he has with, uh, well, with Frank and the family and everything. But, like, um, it still comes off as charming, right? So mm-hmm. you get that, like, that tension between he's here, he's a jerk, but, you know, the family loves him. Yeah, we get that he's, like, charismatic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I really like that. I also, in my notes... I went from he's going to be the focus of the problem to he would definitely be the murder victim in a Christie novel at this point. <laughs> yeah. This is mm-hmm. the point where Agatha Christie's telling us this is the person that's going to die. So pay attention to everyone who hates him in this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the end of the party. Uh, Megan is walking Jim out. Uh, there's this mm-hmm. great I don't know if you caught this. There's yes. this great moment where he kind of this waves is- to someone off camera and we hear from off camera. Someone yell, cool firebird. <laughs> I heard that, and my theory is that this is the valet, right? I'm guessing there's valet. And oh, sure, like, yeah. One of them is telling the other one, "Get the cool firebird." Like that's the that's the car we need to pull from. Oh, they're not. He's not like, oh, here are your keys. This is a cool firebird. Oh, yeah, that could be it. But yeah, yeah, one or the other. But it was just, I loved it. It's a great little nod. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Megan says that she'll call Jim tomorrow. And gives him a kiss on the cheek. Mm-hmm. Jim gets in the Firebird, is ready to leave, when suddenly Patrick just swerves out in front of him. He was like, his car was just one car length in front of him in the driveway. Takes a, a sudden a sudden turn mm-hmm. as Jim is accelerating to leave, and so he ends up hitting Patrick's car. Patrick runs out. He's pissed, obviously. Um, we have some shots of Molly in the car where she's like bleeding like she hit her face on like yeah. a dash or something so she's like fa- bleeding from the mouth which is not graphic but it's a little uh serious like this whole yeah, thing feels troubling. very serious this yeah. is not played for laughs this is mm-hmm. uh, uh dramatic we have some back and forth between jim and patrick Look at you, did Ace. Oh, you pulled right out in front of me what are you blind well i'm not ripped on blowing hair and dirt, i'll tell you that what'd you say you were slapping the backboards when you got here today. You want to say that again? I'll say it again. I got about a hundred witnesses. Yeah. Patrick! Hey, son, don't Patrick, do that. Patrick, for God's sake! Uh, so Patrick takes a swing, and Jim just blocks it and just gives him a huge Jim <laughs> Rockford sucker punch right in the stomach. Ugh. Uh, he's still got it. The old guy's mm-hmm. still got it. Mm-hmm. Some other attendees pull Patrick off, and uh, in the scrum, we kind of zoom out, and Frank is there, and he goes... 
Thank you, Patrick. Excellent choice of birthday present. Yeah, there's a little anger. In the background, I can't remember exactly, but Molly Molly starts sort of crying mm-hmm. at, in Patrick's defense. Yeah, yeah. And mentions that he's already l- had his license taken away. Oh, I didn't I didn't catch that. Yeah, so they're worried worried that uh that they might call the cops or something. But basically, you know, doesn't want him thrown in jail and yeah. I will say that at first I was like, oh, this is a guy, this is his like whatever girlfriend, and I didn't really take much many notes about Molly because I assumed she would not be important. Um and that I was wrong. So Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, you know, yeah, I did not note that in that moment, but maybe there's other stuff I missed as well. Um we go to the trailer. Uh, it's the next morning where Jim brings coffee out, you know, offers some to Angel. Out on that deck. Out on that beautiful deck. That deck is so good. I I really my, I was really like, wait, where are we right now? <laughs> oh, this is the trailer. Angel's taking a break from his his efforts. Mm-hmm. Don't you ever wonder what it all means? Look at me at my age, cleaning aluminum siding on my best friend's house. <laughs> so angel. Best friend's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just saying. It's, yeah. Uh, Jim says, give me a break. I spent the evening with somebody who lost her sight in a car accident at the age of 15. You should see her attitude. That shrink you were bumping back in the early 80s? <laughs> <laughs> Jim sees through Angel's BS, mm-hmm. but to some extent, Angel sees through Jim's mm-hmm. BS too. Mm-hmm. Like, there's... sometimes Jim is a little self righteous. Yeah, and, and Angel's, Angel's like, like, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a. I don't think it matters, and you know, I guess we can do the forensics. I think there's a little bit of playing with the timeline of how like old Megan is in this movie right. yeah. versus like. Like how old she was when they met versus the show, how it establishes how they met, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm not worried about it, but I did think it was funny that he, that just the phrase that shrink you were bumping in the early 80s. Uh, yeah. It's a good angel, angelism. Jim is trying to get Angel to understand, you know, compassion for another's plight. And Angel's like, right. I don't get it. <laughs> he has a good, where he's like, look, Jimmy, I hear a sermon coming on. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know what you're going to, but Yeah. This sermon, the, the, this lecture is important for a later beat, but yeah, yeah, it's mostly more good banter. And then uh, Patrick arrives. He wants to thank Jim for not calling the police. Uh, he could have done jail time. Mm-hmm. And Jim says that his cousin asked him not to. That's the end of it. And tells him to leave. Uh, he definitely does not like Patrick. Yes. <laughs> we get that very clearly. We have a moment where while they're talking, Molly gets out of the car and goes over to angel and like tries to like yeah. hang with him. It seems like she's fairly social and she like yeah, yeah, wants to talk to someone. Yeah. And specifically says, looks like sucky work <laughs> as angel is <laughs> scrubbing half heartedly with the, with his scrub brush. A- Angel's moments in this particular scene, it's because like he scrambles, like he's like, I gotta get back to work. Mm. When he realizes that Patrick and Jim, you know, are, that, that, that's a that there's tension, yeah, yeah, there's tension there. And Angel's like, I want out of this, whatever this is. But then when he goes and she's talking to him, she gives he gives her nothing, yeah, which is a little weird because <laughs> you would think that, like, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's just like Angel's like. There's trouble here, and I don't want to be involved in any of it, whatever it is. Jim takes his fishing pole. Patrick follows him onto the beach, still talking to him. Uh, Megan thinks they should talk uh, because Patrick needs a PI. Mm -hmm. We learn that he's a personal manager. 
um, to actors and other you know folk who need managers. And he has a client who is a, a Russian film star who's he's been working on getting her break in the U.S. And she's been very depressed recently, and she's disappeared. And mm-hmm. so he wants Jim to try and find her. During this, Jim says that he doesn't need a personal manager. He's doing just fine. <laughs> and we end with Jim saying, you're telling me that Megan asked you to ask me to find this Russian as a personal favor to her. And Patrick kind of shrugs and it's like, well, you know, I did my best and, and starts walking away. And Jim gets what I call in my notes, the, well, I'm going to do it, I guess, <laughs> face. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> As he thinks through, you know, his feelings about the whole situation. There's, uh, yeah, my note, the same thing. I was just like, oh, here's the look where Jim's about to take the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a, a Hootie and the Blowfish reference in this conversation mm-hmm. at some mm-hmm. point. Uh, there's also uh, part of this exchange. Uh, Patrick words it as, she said you didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> She was like, she said, what? <laughs> it's like, yeah, he's, this is very, this is a big sticking point for Jim. Yeah. Yeah. However, as we see from his facial expression, he does take the job and we see him in the, the, the contemporary version of Rocky's truck, the big, the big red truck. Yeah. At a Russian bar theater, some kind of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, and he's looking. So the woman's name is, uh, Yekaterina. And so he's looking for her. She's a regular. He's talking to this guy waxing the floor. The guy says, English, no. He pulls out a translation book for Russian, starts stumbling through some Russian phrases. The guy waxing the floor calls his buddy. They start speaking in Spanish. (laughs) Jim uh, realizes the deal and leaves his card for El Bossman, me telefono, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I still think Jim would know more I, functional yeah. spanish at this point in his life but it's it's a gag it's a yeah, yeah. it's a bit the language barrier with this guy um is fun and uh, is uh maybe not entirely foreshadowing but it gets played out again later in the episode which is nice yeah so again you know a a, a david chase production by david chase um yeah <laughs> most of the stuff in this is very tight like it's very like here's the thing mm-hmm. here's the thing <laughs> It will be important later. The chase cubed effect. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's very, yeah, it's very set them up, knock them down. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's written, right? Yeah. Like it's it has written. that. It, it, it's, it's written. And that kind of stuff makes our job a little more um, entertaining <laughs> because it's on the read through as we go through it again. Uh, sometimes these things just dawn on me where mm-hmm. I'm like, right, this is, uh, you know, because when you when you do it linearly and you just watch the episode, mm. it, it it fits in subconsciously. But you may you might not be conscious of like, oh, this is a callback to that earlier thing. But then when you go back through it again, it yeah, yeah, fits in. it can be satisfying on a different level. Mm-hmm. Yes. We then go to Jim over at Megan's. Uh, she's mm-hmm. cooking dinner. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in this scene. Uh, plot wise, we are learning that. Um, her kids are going to go to Atlanta to stay with their dad for the summer. Uh, Frank is also there. He's hanging out with his grandkids. He has a line where he says that, uh, I can't get that Nintendo working. <laughs> and Frank apologizes to Jim again for Patrick saying that uh, mm-hmm. every family has its swamp thing, which is a hell of a hell of a way to refer to someone. 
I was I was so jealous of that. Every family has a swamp thing in my mind. It's like I want to be the swamp thing of my family. Like <laughs> maybe I, you are. I want. Well, yeah, maybe I probably am. <laughs> Actually, no, no, think about it. But yeah, it was a great line. There's a lot of good lines. Uh, um, there there might be something to be read into this uh, as we go along because Frank's language is is often the coded David Chase language mm-hmm. of of mafioso, right? Mm-hmm. Like a little bit. Th- yeah. Not not always, but like kinda gets he gets uh closer to it than say um Megan. Or or even Patrick, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, yeah. The good stuff in this in this scene is establishing Megan's kind of her lifestyle. Yeah, how she deals with blindness and right. yeah. This this movie is a great. Hmm, I'm trying to think of the right term. It's not an introduction. It's a great showcase for accessibility mm-hmm. because what it does is it it over and over it continually shows us how Megan gets around her daily life. She has all these different accessibility tools and techniques, and it's just not a thing. I mean, yeah. it's showing it. So this scene is showing us some of them so that we know that that is her deal that she is functionally independent that she has all these kind of lifestyle things to assist her when she needs it the other thing that the scene is doing is showing us that jim keeps having this impulse to jump in and help her and she doesn't need it there's a thing going on in the camera work where we see we see all of the characters observing her dealing with a thing that they would imagine be would be very difficult for her Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the camera follows what they're watching very closely. So mm-hmm. the, uh, one of the examples in this scene, she's preparing a meal and a egg in its shell gets away from her. Mm-hmm. We see Jim while they're holding the conversation. We see Jim sort of concentrating on the fact that that happened. We see, I think, Frank. Frank waves him off. Like Jim kind of makes like a little half step, like he's going to get it for her or he's going to be like, let me get that for you. And Frank gives him a little like, don't do it. And then there's a beat. Yeah. And then she uh, asks for one of her kids Mm -hmm. to help with the egg. And the other one, I believe, just Mm -hmm. tells her using uh, uh, clock directions. Right. I think he says it's like two o'clock or something like that. Like and and she gets it right away. But like so we see the whole family knows how to deal with it. We we see that she has a coping mechanism and there's no reason to get involved. There's no reason to step in the uh, you might just get in the way. Right. Like, you you know, you don't know. And, uh, you know, I apologize if if this isn't really the appropriate terminology, but like it's not even that she I mean, you're right that it is a, a coping mechanism in the sense of making up for, you know, whatever she challenges she's having. But it's also showing us that she just lives in an accessible world. Mm-hmm. Part of that functionality is like her kids help. And it's just yeah. a thing. It's, it's it's like asking someone to hand you the fork. Right. Because you're too far away from the fork. Yeah. Yeah. Egg, two o'clock, gets it. Uh, the son's response is, is distracted even. Yeah. He's not even really paying attention. It's just part of their life. Yeah. Exactly. I guess that's what I mean about the kids feeling very real. Because like this yeah. whole thing feels like we're just watching a family in yeah. just a moment of no particular import. Yeah. And then the other thing that I, the other little layer that I really like is how Frank, Frank has this, this fatherly protectiveness of her independence. Yeah. Right. So he's like, you know, Jim, don't, don't help her. Mm -hmm. That comes off to me simultaneously as like good. Like he's like, Frank's right. Jim shouldn't interfere. 
but also very paternalistic and like she can do this on her own. Right, right. And he and that's a point of pride for him. And I mm-hmm. think that's also a part of like that layer I think is also intentional. Yeah, yeah. How he views her and her you know, and yeah. her blindness. And that will come up, I think, uh, towards mm-hmm. the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I keep wanting to say episode, but it's a movie. All right. So that all said, this was all precursor to Megan and Jim going out to dinner. Mm-hmm. And this is where finally Jim expresses his uh, uh, miffedness that Megan told Patrick that he wasn't working. Yes. <laughs> I never said you didn't have a job. I said you were available. Oh, available. Excuse me. Well, aren't you? I do not need a personal manager. Stop repeating yourself. You're so proud of that line. Yeah. (laughs) This felt to me like a good, I mean, this is a very Rockford moment and it's also very like uh, a moment uh, forged in the fires of Jim and Beth, their whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He uh, wants to know why she's so hot to help him anyway. He seems like such a jerk. She runs down all of his good features. Mm-hmm. You know, he lived abroad. He lived in Africa. He lived in Russia. You know, two, two <laughs> geographic locations that are the, the roughly the same. But uh, he lived in Russia. She says that he was one of the first capitalists there after the coup in 91. <laughs> he knows Yeltsin. Yes. And Jim says, I can tell from his driving. Good, good topical humor. Is that that? So I had this faint like, uh, I feel like that's that was probably Yeltsin was was a drunk. I didn't know if there was like a specific like driving incident that he was referencing. uh, I'm pretty sure that the whole thing, he was an alcoholic. Yeah, he's just notoriously. Notoriously an alcoholic. And and, uh, I remember that like a little bit older than you, but still a teenager who shouldn't have been paying that close (laughs) attention to it. Or I shouldn't say shouldn't, but like, yeah. Anyhow, uh, growing up, you know, they were close. He was her big cousin. He has a lot of positive attributes uh, and and she kind of feels defensive of, you know, when people are are mean to him. Yeah. Uh, But she changes the subject, asks about Jim's marriage. Uh, He says, you first. (laughs) Basically, like we grew apart over time. Just usual stuff. Kids are great, Mm -hmm. but we just weren't working, you know, whatever. And then it's like, you know, don't get out of this. What about your marriage? And Mm -hmm. Jim just has his one one line. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kid's a great person but the whole thing convinced me i don't want those kinds of complications in my life especially at this age yeah <laughs> and megan's like same here the shots throughout the scene of the two of them get increasingly close and intimate in a mm-hmm. way that felt really charged like yeah really like the camera work here is very does a lot of the heavy lifting to give us like there's clearly a spark here they're both interested in you know interested in whatever it might lead to right it it really gives us the portrait of like two people who are interested in spending more time together yeah without being like schmaltzy or creepy um so david chase director good job david chase director good job carrying david chase the writer no no <laughs> somehow those two things just work together really nicely yep so next we have jim going to i guess it's downtown still it's a very different kind of station these days yeah but going to the station to see our good friend dennis becker and this is uh again a i mean they've had six movies yeah yeah at no point were they not true to form with any of their character interactions like i think from the first movie we're like wow they're just right back at it yeah but yeah. this for whatever reason just felt like a pure like you could have transported this scene straight from an episode <laughs> in like 76 to 90 right it's yeah like, yeah yeah 
where Jim just drops by Dennis's desk. <laughs> I was just in the area. Oh, how's the cyst? You want to see it? I'd have nothing to compare it to. So you got an office with a window. Listen, I, I was just wondering if possibly you could do me a favor. And Dennis mm-hmm. blows up. This, he has this whole litany about how the department is, it's, everything's in the toilet, we're overloaded, we have all this mm-hmm. scrutiny, our response time is a subject of public mockery, right. um, and all the same negative voices come in here asking for a special treatment, <laughs> and Jim says that he just thought a friend would be happy to see him working again. <laughs> it, why he would be bristle, uh, bristle at the, the original implication. and yeah. There's also a little bit of the same angle that angel uses on jim right yeah. like i'm just a friend like let's <laughs> it's his favorite kind of job the skip trace mm-hmm. favorite kind because he because he can get dennis to do it and then make it you know and then like you know make his upcharge or whatever yeah so he's asking dennis to look see what he can if there's anything reported about this actress yekaterina yes jim gives dennis a file mm-hmm. and dennis reads the name why katarina <laughs> and then they have a whole who's on first routine yeah. <laughs> about the name, which is both obvious and fun. Yeah. Worth watching. That, that That's a good spot. That's a good bit. Uh, then we have Jim returning to his trailer. Uh, it's late. There's a pile of cans inside the door and on his answering machine, a message from angel saying that he's quitting the job. He's going to go drive for your buddy, Patrick, I think, or yeah. however he phrases it. <laughs> I might put it at the beginning of the episode. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is this bodes well. I mean, I think Patrick and Angel should really work together. Perfect combo. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to go from here into uh, one of our oh, yeah. first <laughs> seriously <laughs> dramatic yeah. Yeah. Uh, moments. So Jim gets in like 2 a.m. or whatever. We then go to seeing his clock ticking over to 6 a.m. When Jim hears something outside the trailer, it wakes him up. He looks out the window and we see two cars outside his trailer just emptying themselves of goons. Just yeah. clearly a bunch of goons. I mean, my notes here, I was just like, a lot of heavies for a case that Jim barely started. Right. Um, Jim gets his gun out of the cookie jar. Mm-hmm. There's the knock on the door, and he goes, and so there's an older guy, and he has Jim's card, right? Because mm-hmm. Jim left his card at the, the bar or whatever. Uh, and says, and there's some banter about, like, you're looking for your Katerina? Mm-hmm. Maybe I am. Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. There's some banter. And then there's just a explosion as the two heavy goons bust down his door, knock yeah. him down, get the gun away from him, and then hold him down in his in his easy chair. The main guy asks who engaged him. Um, and, you know, Jim is not going to, you know, give up a client or whatever. There's two goons. So they're all Russian, right? They're speaking mm-hmm. to each other in Russian. So we get, you know, some, so we get that. The two heavies, one of them is the main guy and he's the one who's always wearing like sports jerseys and stuff. Mm-hmm. We, I think eventually we learn his name is Boris. Yes. He pulls out a syringe and is pulling, you know, some kind of injection. And Jim immediately is like, Patrick Doherty. Yeah. Yeah. Just gives him up. <laughs> but they inject him anyway. And then, uh, there is, uh, a pretty brutal, <laughs> Yeah, it's brutal. Situation. Content warning. This guy likes to torture people. So there is some gross, not graphic, but brutal, you know, stuff that happens. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who does the speaking in English, that's... That is... Koblitz. Um, that's Koblitz. Yeah. Koblitz, who's got 
real Wrath of Khan vibes. Yes, he really does. But yeah, the, so uh, yeah, he does a lot of not so subtle, subtle threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, they they get Jim's golf cl- like his putter or something, and uh, just go to town on the soles of his feet, giving us the excuse for Jim's limp this ep- this mm, this movie. It's true. I was like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing here. But yeah, it's brutal. It's rough. After each question, the guy just winds up and just is a full yeah. driver swing into the sole of Jim's foot. Uh, and it is no good. So they ask him if he's found uh, Yekaterina, asks if he knows where Patrick is, and he doesn't know any of these things, right? Mm-hmm. The guy, uh, so we... We will learn this is uh, Gennady Koblitz says, like, I'm sorry, I have to leave things on such a basis. And he (laughs) leaves and leaves Boris to uh, make another swing. And we cut like from that, like, noise to the next morning with a close up of the gun and the bottle and the syringe on the carpet of the um, trailer. Then we see Jim's poor busted up feet. They're all bruised and swollen. And we see him kind of like wake up and then physically wake up like feel yeah yeah feel the the effects he drives still woozy from whatever this injection is to megan's house he stumbles out of the truck he's holding his gun and i'm like oh no like this (laughs) probably is is not gonna go well he calls for megan there's no answer and then he he passes out on a bench next to her door basically her entryway has like a little bench and he yeah yeah on her front porch or something yeah, yeah. he he passes out on that and we see him drop the gun and so i'm yeah. like oh this is going to be a thing yeah uh fortunately it is not a thing but it is very mm-hmm. dramatic cut to nighttime megan is getting dropped off by her sister after they took the kids to the airport to go to atlanta she walks past jim doesn't see him mm-hmm um, but then as she's like getting her keys, she hears him groaning. <laughs> Who is that? And he has a muttered, I'll take the trash out in the morning. Like, you know, some kind of like dream yeah. talking to sleep mutter. And here's that it's Jim. We go to Becker in Megan's house with Jim. He's getting his Jim. Jim's getting his feet all iced. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just plunging his feet into yeah. the bags of ice. And some conversation to figure out what is going on. That whole sequence, uh, very dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. very like, oh, it's on. Like, yeah, yeah. It is, is... it is on now. Um, we have some pretty high stakes. I'm still, at this point, not entirely sure what is happening. Clearly, there is something going on that none of our principals are aware of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole gym driving still doped up. Uh mm. With his blinker on the whole way, you know, that kind of... Uh... Poor decision-making, but he's concerned for Megan, right? He's yeah, like, exactly. Patrick is in danger. I need to find Megan. That's his instinct. And kudos to David Chase for writing the kids out of the story at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, <laughs> well done. Uh, Megan also has a seeing-eye dog, uh, an adorable oh, yeah. golden retriever named Buddy. Um, mm-hmm. Buddy is a wonderful character. He does a great job. There is one moment where we might be worried about Buddy. Buddy is okay. Nothing happens to Buddy. Uh, he does respond to Jim on the park bench right. with a little, like, apprehensiveness of, like, what's going on here. But that's it. That's all you get from him in that scene. We are going to take a little break in the middle of our episode here so that we can stretch, maybe get a beverage or a snack. 
and talk about the other places that you can find us on the internet. Epi, if our listeners want more Epi, where can they go to get Maximum Epi? You can find uh, me at my website, digathousandholes.com. That's dig1000holes.com. Or you can get my sword and sorcery fiction and games at worldswithoutmaster.com. That's worlds, plural, master, singular. If you want to engage with me on the social medias, the best place to go right now is Mastodon at Epidia at Dice.camp. Nathan, if they want to get Maximum Nathan, where do they have to go for that? I should have gone Maximum Nathan. Maximum Nathan can be found at my website, ndpdesign.com. That's the hub for all my stuff on the internet, including all my uh, role-playing games, zines, and other podcasts. Uh, So if you're interested in pro wrestling detectives Mm -hmm. or zines about pro wrestling, (laughs) among other things, um, those are all at my website. It also has links to contact me in other ways. Currently, I'm still... um, Posting on Instagram at Andy Paoletta. That's where I'm posting pictures of my dog. Uh, you can also find me at cohost, cohost.org slash NDP. That is a fun, small scale social media site that I'm enjoying quite a lot. And now we return to the continuing adventures of Jimbo Rockfish. Becker says that they finally got in touch with Molly. She hasn't mm-hmm. seen Patrick, so he's basically been missing since sometime yesterday. Um, Jim says these guys. They must have like KGB training or be like yeah. either mafia or KGB or both. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no one, you know, neither Jim or nor nor Megan know who they could be. She does reiterate that Patrick was in Russia. You know, she lists off a couple of different reasons he was in Russia and could know Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a gag about Tivas. And then a Billings appearance. Yes. <laughs> uh, to say that none of the neighbors saw anything. And Jim says not even a crazy old guy waving a gun around. Yeah, yeah. Like a tall whacked out on, I don't remember what mm. he said, but yeah. 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 <laughs> Bugs was like, did that happen? <laughs> so that's good. But uh, Megan pack a bag. We can't stay here. And this is when Dennis does reveal that they did get something on Yekaterina. She's been found. She is in a hospital from an overdose, but mm-hmm. is in satisfactory condition. Very tight. Here's stuff that's going on. Oh, here's the next lead, kind of. Yeah, yeah. This is where we're going next. Yeah. So we go to the hospital, and here's where Jim's walking with his cane um, for the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This scene has more kind of like back and forth to remind us of her background and kind mm-hmm. of what the deal is, as well as to give us some new information. What we learn is that uh, Katerina, uh so yes, Patrick is her manager and she is like seeing or was seeing the guy Koblitz, mm-hmm. but now she doesn't want them to tell him that she's in the hospital as soon as she can. She's going back to Moscow this whole thing in America isn't working out. Um, she had like an argument with, with Koblitz, uh, and then after that took too many pills and that's how she ended up in the hospital. She has a couple moments where she's like, you can't tell him I'm here. And she tries to offer Jim a watch and offer Megan a fur coat to like, yeah, you know, kind of as bribes almost. And they're like, you don't need to bribe us. We're not going to tell him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like, you know, some cultural barrier there. And we end the scene with Jim telling Megan that you need to tell your father. So we go to Frank's house. At this point in my notes, I am not entirely sure that that's the right move, Jim. Mm-hmm. But 
but we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a question. So this whole episode is very, we know what Jim knows. This is a yeah, yeah. very one-to-one, yeah. you know, knowledge situation. But we do get some some foreshadowing in various ways. Somewhere in this scene, I was kind of like, okay, so Frank's something about this. Frank is touching something about this situation. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's in concert with or in opposition to these Russian guys. But, like, there's something here, right? Right, right. I, I was like, is Frank crooked? Mm-hmm. What's going on with Frank in this? Uh, I was, well, we'll find out what I was. Yeah. <laughs> they tell Frank what they've learned. Um, and he says that he knows Kennedy Koblitz. Uh, he's not an idiot. And he knows not to touch anyone in Frank's family. I have the mm-hmm. kind of friends who will send him to the cold room. Yeah. And Megan says, well, he wants to kill Patrick. <laughs> and Frank says, I said my family. I'm not talking about Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. pretty cold. Um, he's hot-headed, but he'll see reason. He, he just wants to scare, you know, scare Patrick. Maybe it'll... Mm-hmm actually get through a thick skull or something like that but he knows him through patrick uh Kennedy had come into possession of some 15th century russian religious icons and frank mm-hmm. knew a collector so he helped with the negotiations something like that and megan is like i can't believe you did that yeah yeah <laughs> like, like what is wrong with you and then she excuses herself to go to the bathroom and again here we see the specific relationship that Frank has with Megan, where she he turns to Jim and is like, She's really something, isn't she? Well, she's something, all right. Notice the way she took me to task. <laughs> None of my other kids have that much spine. If we weren't suspicious of Frank, we know now that Frank, uh, we don't know, like, is this about something Frank did? Right. Or is Frank aggravating it? We don't know that, but we do know that, like you said, Frank touches this in some way. We get the sense that he doesn't really have a strong moral compass. Is there a big difference between Patrick and Frank other mm. than age, right? Like, Sure, yeah, yeah. Because uh, they're, they're both in the same business and they're both... Or Frank used to be in the same business as Patrick, right? Yeah, he's a talent. He, he ran a talent agency or something. Yeah. yeah, like he goes, oh yeah, I know this, this Russian heavy. I know mm. this guy. I've worked with him. <laughs> I guess more more revelations to come. This next scene, I think this is the one that starts with like the scariest image you could have in the Rockford Files. Where Jim is taking groceries out of the car. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in my notes, I say, uh-oh. <laughs> it's like, oh no, it's going to get worse. Uh, listener, this might be the only time in the Rockford Files where we've seen Jim by himself at night take a bag of groceries out of a car and not get jumped. Yeah, this is... Uh. Uh. Um, he is going inside this cabin where, uh, inside Megan is on the phone with her kids. Uh, I, and then I have a note. He makes it in. Okay. Exclamation point. (laughs) So they are hiding out in Rocky's old studio, which is this kind of woodsy cabin. There's a mediocre at best painting of Jim on the wall. Yeah. Which is fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but he says it was a studio, but all he ever did was bring his buddies up on the weekend. They'd watch the game and grill kielbasa. <laughs> um, Jim can't unload it, but he still pays taxes on it. <laughs> we established the kids got to Atlanta. All right. That's all. They're all good. Um, Megan says, let's not have the conversation about who's going to sleep on the couch and who's going to sleep in the bed. <laughs> and Jim replies that his bad back cuts into his chivalry these days. She can sleep where she wants. 
That's a good line. There's a long pause. Megan asks, you know, ask Jim, why did you call me? Mm -hmm. Um, Like in the first place, right? And we have a really great sequence where Jim kind of, this is all without any more dialogue. Jim goes over to her, sits, takes her hands, and then there's a romantic music swell Mm -hmm. as she holds his hands and then feels up to his face and holds his face and then brings him in for a kiss. And we cut to Buddy lying down on the floor. <laughs> With the the guitar playing mm-hmm. a very tender... Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's Again, it's it manages... I mean, at least for me, it manages to be charged without being, like, schmaltzy. Yeah, it's good. It, it plays well on the screen. It's a good use of all that tension you build up by having Jim carry the groceries from the mm-hmm. car to the mm-hmm. cabin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. The next scene feels like it's from a different yeah. episode, <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. It's our only instance of Jim, Jim running a con. Mm-hmm. So the deal is that Jim is pretending to be a professor who works with some other professor who's a Russia expert. And he is coming to see a guy named Festa, who happens to be at the gym and is clearly mobbed up. His guy who takes Jim's card and then brings him down the elevator is the most mobby goon yes. you ever <laughs> did see. I would be very surprised that this guy didn't end up in other David Chase. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Zepps is the character yeah, name. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> His real name is Johnny Williams. Uh huh. He was in Goodfellas as Johnny Roast Beef. <laughs> uh. A lot of his credits are mobster or mafioso. He's in a movie called Crybabies, playing a character named Tony Two Guns. <laughs> he's in a movie called Real Gangsters, playing a character named Big Tony. And he's in a movie called Jersey Justice, playing a character named Big Bill Romeo. So that's <laughs> the kind of guy. That's yeah. the kind of guy that we're talking about. Um, Festa. I thought I recognized him and I did not. He just mm. looks like another actor that I know. Yeah. Um, he looks like he should be in movies. Yeah. Look, and he actually is not in that many movies. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, I don't know. This is the bringing in the Italian mob. Yeah. Part of, of the David Chase project. So this guy Festa continues working out the entire time that he's talking to Jim. Mm-hmm. Jim tracked him down through. Uh, he saw his name in a newspaper article paired with Gennady. They -hmm. had some kind of partnership to buy property in Atlantic City. He's working with this other professor who's interested in Gennady and blah, blah, blah. Like, he has whatever his cover story is. That doesn't really matter. (laughs) Festa says, that partnership did not eventuate. (laughs) And says that he's lower than a silverfish. You know, the Russian part of the partnership ripped them off for $18 million. Let me tell you something about the Russian mafia. They're violent. They're sociopathic. A bath once in a while would be nice, too. That's not true, Rich. What, are you going to contradict me? This is a sociocultural thing. I think it's so cold over there taking a shower is not instilled in the young. I think it's up to the individual. Koblitz with me was always (sighs) well-groomed. It was great, because he just kind of called him on his BS. It was just like, you know, like some people are this way and some people are, you know, like, it it was good. It's good. So Jim asks if he knows where Koblitz is. Uh, Festa says, I would be willing to pay up to four figures for that information myself. <laughs> and Jim goes, is that right? <laughs> we know that there is uh, a, a, a mobbed up guy with a grudge against these yeah. Russians. This may be important later. 
Our next scene is uh, back at the cabin. There's still no word from Patrick. Megan's still in bed. Um, this is kind of like a, a, a short scene showing us their, you know, the, the tenderness that has grown between them. Yeah. Um, uh, this is a resonant touch for me. So she's on the run, right? She's like not, she had to like not work, right? She's in yeah, hiding. Yeah. You know, she's like, there's there's actually something nice about being in this cabin away from everything no work to do hmm. i feel like i'm getting away with something right and jim's like that's the problem with la there's no snow days so yeah. that that feeling of as an adult being like oh wait i don't have to do anything today yeah and yeah. how rare that is <laughs> she's living in a different world in this cabin i mean this is yeah uh this is going to become part of a uh tension that rolls out in their relationship because this hmm. at this moment they have a relationship and it's in this world this fantasy world where she doesn't have work to do or anything mm. like that. And when she returns back to, to real life, that's going to be, um, that's going to come into question. Not that she uses this language, but it's also like a fantasy world where she doesn't, she doesn't have to deal with her kids. She doesn't have to deal yeah. with her dad. Everything. She doesn't have to deal with her family. Yeah. Like it's just like her and Jim and buddy. Yeah. And Jim's the one doing stuff. Like he's going off to do things and coming back. It, yeah. It's this little fantasy world, but it's very nice while you're in it. Right. Yeah. And, and Jim agrees to the extent that he, he likes the, like he doesn't like being on the run or whatever, but he likes the being there with her part. Right. Right. Later, she tries her answering service again, and there is indeed a message from Patrick. Mm -hmm. It says there's nothing to worry about. He's fine. He spent the night with a client. Um, <laughs> he's been on the move, actually got a lot of work done, but he knows Koblitz, and it's all going to blow over. So don't worry about it. Um, he's going to get Molly, and they're going to go. He named something. I assume it's like a hotel or a resort or something. Like They're going to basically yeah. go out of town for a few days. She plays this for both of them to hear, and Jim just goes, Molly's. Get dressed. Yeah. Um, we uh, go to the truck where we have a brief moment before our next action sequence. She he asks Megan what she's thinking about, and she says that she hopes her kids are having fun with their dad. Jim turns into a uh, into like the driveway lane, <laughs> and a gray car is shooting out of the lane. Jim hits it, and it's Angel. Yeah. The speed at which this goes from a gag to something very. Yeah, serious is uh, not to make a pun, but whiplash inducing. Because because uh, like in Angel's car, it's a gag, right? Yeah. Like you see Angel, he's about to capitalize on everything that just happened. But um, Megan, it doesn't know what's going on. Just knows that she was in an accident. Doesn't realize there's Angel in the other car, right? Right. And is is kind of having this panic. And as far as we know, accidents have a post traumatic stress situation for her. Mm -hmm. And Jim is kind of leaping back and forth between the boundary between the two, which I like. It's a good scene for that kind of like, uh, and you can also just get the kernel of the scam that angels about to hatch. Mm -hmm. Angel is like putting pieces together now. Yeah. And he's Jim's approaches and he's like, uh, and, and, and angels like call nine 11. Yeah. <laughs> Jim's like angel and angel sees this Jim. And the first thing he says is it's horrible back there. It's horrible. Jim goes to check on, Megan, who is freaking out about Buddy, because, you know, the dog's in the yeah. car, right? She doesn't, he's like, Buddy's fine, Buddy's fine. Stand here. He gets her out of the car, has her stand, goes back to Angel. Mm -hmm. And by then, Angel's, like, really playing up. He's like, oh. Mm -hmm. I think he says, I'm leaking cranial fluid. Don't move <laughs> me. And Jim, uh, you know, has no time for, for Angel. Yeah. Uh, we go up to the house, and we see 
a very rough scene. Uh, Molly has clearly been assaulted. She's Mm -hmm. on the ground. Patrick is like crouched over her. He's basically crying, uh, calling her name. As Angel said, it is uh, horrible. Mm -hmm. So we go from there to the hospital where we hear Molly asking someone to call her mother. So we get that like, okay, so she's alive. alive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Becker, Jim, Patrick, and Megan are talking through what's happened. Um, Becker says that she's in rough shape. She was beat up. She was also sexually assaulted, possibly by both guys. There's two. She was attacked by two Russian men. Mm -hmm. Not Koblitz. She would recognize Koblitz, but, you know, assumedly those two guys. Yeah. Um, Patrick is apologizing. I'm so sorry. So sorry for what happened to Molly. And there's an amazing line. So sorry about all of this. Jim, what they did to you. You've got no reason that I can remember to call me Jim. The timing is so good. Yeah, that's oh, a good, good line. It has so much potential energy in the beginning with that, like, you have no reason to apologize, right? Like something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. But no, no. Patrick is the bad guy in this mm-hmm. situation to Jim still. The menace behind it is just, it's, it's really good. It's not the overblown anger that he uses to yell at Angel. It's no. the icy, cold you are lower than scum to me. Right. That yeah. I think we rarely see deployed and it is scathing. Yeah. Becker talks to Patrick to get more background and we kind of, you know, get more exposition through their conversation. Kennedy blames Patrick for Yekaterina's career not taking off. And then when she split, that's when Patrick hired Jim. Um, Becker asks about his fee for his management situation, the usual 15%. And he's kind of like, uh, yeah, well, no. <laughs> and yeah. Megan's like, what do you mean, no? So Megan's the one who's like, Patrick, I know that you're holding something back. Yeah. Which I think is also important. The deal was that he asked Gennady for $100,000 cash up front and promised that your Katerina would win a go- Golden Globe. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what? Yeah. And he's like, he's in litigation for a screenplay. He owes $40,000 for something. And he's like, well, what else was I supposed to do? He apologizes again. He says, don't tell Uncle Frank about the Golden Globe thing. And Becker's just like, I've seen enough. And he just leaves. Uh, Jim goes to follow him and passes Angel being wheeled in on a stretcher where he's groaning about not being able to see. He has a coat over his face. So yes. Jim takes the coat off his face and he goes, Jimmy, I'm blind. And Jim's like, you're not blind. You have a minor concussion. They're going to keep you for observation. You're going to be fine. Specifically, you've been making blind jokes and now you're scared. Like, get over yourself. <laughs> and again, another piece of angelness here where he wants to know. He wants Jim to assure him that is is Mr. D still going to hire me? He owes me two right. days pay and then asks if 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 Molly mentioned how the food is in the hospital. It's like, uh Angel. It must be a joy to write for Angel. To just be <laughs> like, okay, in this situation, what concerns Angel the most? Right. Whether he gets to keep his job, whether he gets his back pay. Like, he's clearly fled the scene after they came upon it. Even if he didn't get into a wreck or anything like that, you fled in his car. Mm-hmm. You would, you charges would be pressed mm-hmm. against you. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I do, do want to note that uh, 16 years after this aired, no, wait. 18 years after this aired, Patrick does get his Golden Globe. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I looked that up. Good sleuthing. 
We then go to another uh, heavy scene where we go outside with Megan and Jim. This is a great frame where they're going to the truck. Uh, They must be on like a rooftop parking lot or something, right? So it's like framed in the center of the screen against the L.A. skyline. Yeah. There's something about it that's like really striking. You know, we don't have any other cars or anything. So it's just like it it really feels like they're alone, the two of them. Yeah. And this like moment even though they're probably in like a crowded hospital parking lot or whatever jim does not understand why why she's so protective of patrick Mm -hmm. she says that she doesn't need him to understand that's good because i don't understand well that's too bad they have this art they continue this argument she continues defending him says he wasn't always this way he got into harvard uh he had all these accolades and stuff (laughs) jim's like he says like lots of stupid people get into harvard or something like that (laughs) um but he says all this stuff, uh, you know, and he did this all without a father. And Jim says, well, he had your dad and that hit some kind of nerve. Mm-hmm. So we get to the emotional, dramatic core uh, character moment here. She has something to tell Jim. She has to work herself up to it, but she wants to tell him the we have a flashback sequence with her narrating over it. Back in the back in the seventies, like their families would all get together for the holidays, and they had this like cabin or whatever, and all the kids would go, basically just like like a party, just yeah, party, just yeah. yeah. All the kids, they're all teenagers, right? And they would all party, mm-hmm. or or maybe coming back from college for the older ones or whatever, and they would all party. They'd all bring their like boyfriends and girlfriends and like whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's this flashback montage of this party. You know, there, there's a couple kids who are clearly the troublemakers, and they break open a there's like a cabinet. That they like break open because there's a gun in it and they're they yeah. start playing with the gun and there's this very uh tension filled series of shots as kids are taking this gun and pointing it at each other and then like mm. pushing it away and then pulling the trigger but there's it's it's not loaded we think um she's outside the cabin with her boyfriend and then Patrick's inside the cab he's taking it away from this other kid and then he's like going to put it back but then he like looks at it and he's like kind of also overcome with how cool it is or whatever yeah. He fires it, I guess. It goes off. Or it goes off in his hand. It's hard to tell from the shot. Yeah. uh, But there is at least one bullet in it. It goes off and it shoots through the window. Mm -hmm. We come back to the present. So I always just say I lost my sight in a car accident. Otherwise, when people meet Patrick or even in the way they relate to me, it's just a lot easier. This brings her and Patrick together because the... Uh, they both experience social isolation after mm-hmm. this event because she has gone blind and people treat her differently mm-hmm. and him because he's responsible mm-hmm. for the event and people treat him differently. And that like paradoxically draws them closer together. He had a suicide attempt. She yeah. responded to that by telling him that if he left her, she was going to like she was going to kill herself. Yeah. Uh, which, you know. It's classically not a great thing to tell to someone who's suicidal, but yeah. she, she does bracket that with like, I was 15. I didn't know, you know, like yeah. she clearly was going through crisis at the same time. She says that this takes place in 71, mm-hmm. right? So that's three years before the first Rockford Files episode. Yeah. Yeah. That's the like time discontinuity with yeah. the sh- original show. Uh, that places her at 20 years old, I think, or early twenties in yeah. the, when she, first meets rockford so we'll see when we watch the (laughs) the the other ones yeah i think it's a little close but yeah 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 and uh yeah she says they're a private club of two yeah 
going through this again, this resonates with her kind of like having these having these isolated like I have this experience with this person, like kind of how she is with Jim in the cabin. Yeah. Like I have this experience with this person, like her and Patrick have their, what has happened between them. And both of those, she has to have that as well as having her whole entire other life. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. Um, Yeah. It's heavy. It's heavy stuff, but it's a good scene. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, um, fairly unique in the annals of the Rockford files. We don't get many flashbacks like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Like that that's a, a pretty standard um amongst a lot of mystery mm-hmm. shows and things like that to see like we'll go to twenty years earlier or thirty mm-hmm. years earlier or something like that. But we don't I actually can't think of another Rockford Files yeah. that does that. That does a visual flashback. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. there's like a voiceover, but it almost always comes out in dialogue of some yeah. sort, but it's, yeah. I mean, I think, I wonder if that's an effect of like the medium, like you can't, that's a lot of extra filming to do for like a weekly right. television show, but yeah. for a one-off, not a one-off, but like for a TV a movie, movie with a longer yeah. production schedule. Um, and also just stylistically that feels more nineties <laughs> yeah, to me, but yeah, yeah, that's good. It, it was, it, I was, it was unexpected. Mm-hmm. I also want to say, like, like the filming of the flashback and the whole playing around with the gun is very well done as far as like tension building. Because mm-hmm. there's also a question of where is this going? Yeah, yeah. Which is left pretty unresolved until the very end. And even then, I was like, so like, did he kill her boyfriend? Like that right. was my first thought. The introduction of the story is about this guy that she's interested in mm-hmm. that that she either meets at the party or is bo- uh, yeah like or they're yeah. Ju- it's their early relationship or something like that so you have this feeling of like we haven't heard about this guy <laughs> like right, right. what's his what happened to him and so yeah it, de- it definitely feels like he's going to end up getting shot or um even what what is it that they use there's something they use to jimmy the lock oh it's a golf club yeah yes was it i think yes so. yeah it'd be like the setup for the second of three introductions or three times we see the golf clubs mm. yeah it stands out yeah that was well done but we do go from there to the next day in the cabin we are we are breaking that tension with megan waking up and saying that she slept great mm-hmm. and that she loves this place uh jim says rocky would be happy to hear it mm-hmm. but he needs to find Coblet so they can all get on with their lives throughout this um Megan's been saying like all the things that she's hearing, like all the beautiful bird songs and stuff. Yeah. And there's specifically a bird that is that is singing every 17 seconds. And like yeah. that's something she's really like identified with. Yeah. So this is the second mention of this high pitched bird singing every 17 seconds. Just because it was mentioned specifically again, I was like, I wonder if that's going to be some kind of device. It's not. It's just. No, no. It's more of the material about her experience of the world. Yeah, yeah. So Jim needs to find Koblitz. We go to back to our Russian nightclub uh, <laughs> where we come in with uh, some shots of a Russian kind of torch singer doing some, you know, singing. I knew the song. I almost I didn't even write the song down. It's a Russian version of a, a standard. And I can't remember what it was now. Ah, curses. <laughs> uh, Dennis meets Jim outside. And saying, I just got on days. Yeah. <laughs> but Jim had staked the place out 
until Koblitz are, you know, showed up. And so mm-hmm. Dennis is there to, to help him out. Um, so they go in, uh, Dennis identifies himself as a police officer, wants to talk to Koblitz. Um, <laughs> it's like, this man says that you went to his home, assaulted him, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What do you have to say? Kennedy's like, I went to his house to talk. There was no assault. <laughs> and that's kind of his whole thing. He's like, yeah, the story he told you is embellished. Like, yes, we talked. He left his card here. I wanted to see if I could help, but I could not help. Right. That kind yeah. of stuff. They they introduce that they know this, about this guy, Boris, Boris Andreevich, who's the, the torture guy. Um, did you go with him? He's like, no, I went alone. And then Koblet's mother arrives and he introduces yeah. <laughs> his mother, who does not speak English, but she loves L.A., uh, and then when they ask him where he was, like, where were you when like Molly was assaulted? He's like, I was with my mother and Jim's like, Oh, at Disneyland. And she reacts to Disneyland and there's a gag about Disney. Yeah. Um, she loves pirates of the Caribbean. we got to end the scene with Dennis telling Coblitz that he's uh, of active interest to the department. Uh, my big note on that scene is that at the beginning, I'm just like, Jim's about to get real meaty here. <laughs> He's very physical in this scene. He yeah, really yeah. wants uh, Dennis to just stand by and let him roll this guy over. Uh, the whole business with the the mom uh, was kind of fun, just with Jim's sarcasm. Because mm-hmm. there's a few other sites that they mention, maybe Knott's Berry Farm, or I, yeah. I don't remember what all of them are, but like Jim knows exactly the excuses that this guy, or alibis that this guy is set up from himself because they're they're obvious yeah and it's like jim is rolling his eyes at him and whatnot it's it's good uh it's a good scene um because it just ramps up a little more anger between jim yeah. and Coplitz. not that there needs to be any more but it yeah jim goes to see megan in her office uh she's acting fairly manic uh and mm-hmm. he's kind of like hey what you know what's up <laughs> yeah so she's back at work, right? She's like catching up on all the stuff she has to do and whatever. She sighs. Uh, she just talked to her husband. It's kind of like, I'm coming back to reality, right? Yes. Talk to my husband. We've been talking about getting back together, kind of like mostly for the children. Your situation isn't typical, you know? I said I got it. Oh, don't be like that. Like what? You're going to do what you're going to do. I mean, don't expect me to sit here and scrunch up my hanky over your children. They've got everything. And you know what? It is none of my business. It's just so complicated. And that's exactly what we agreed we didn't want. Oh, right. And you called me to compare notes. Uh, there's a, what I term a mature argument in the sense that this seems like an argument that adults would have. Yes. Um, as opposed to a TV argument, which is overblown and doesn't doesn't seem germane to what they're actually arguing about. I don't know why I feel like I have to make that distinction, but sometimes... No, with- I think it's good. Like, the setup is good, too. Like, the, like you were saying, she's kind of keeping herself busy as a defense to keep from having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jim's like, well, whatever this is, we need to have that conversation. And then when they do... Yeah, it's an argument, but it's not like shouting. There's no doors being slammed. Mm-hmm. There are definitely feelings being hurt, but they're not irreparably being hurt. Right, right. They both kind of know where the other person's coming from. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not painful to have this conversation. And, and to some extent, that sucks because you, you actually want to have the door slamming mm-hmm. angry. Like, there's there's some great lines, especially when, like, he says, like, you're the one that got sexual. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, I'm glad I forced the issue. Yeah. And the sex was great, by the way. Like, just very, like... <laughs> yeah, like, I don't regret that. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing's wrong with that. The the, the core of it uh, here is that she says, it's also complicated. And Jim says, 
well, that's what we said we didn't want. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets back to him saying that his first marriage ended because, like, it was too complicated, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> he is kind of like, and I thought that's where we both were. And she's like, well, we still need to acknowledge that we have something. Yeah. Um, they end, uh, this was saying they were going to go to a concert and he's like, I don't think we should go to the concert. I don't see how we could have a good time. You know, you should go with your sister, you know, send me a Braves hat sometime or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cause Atlanta. Okay. I just, Atlanta, yeah. I was like, why did you say that? <laughs> Atlanta. I'm there now. It's a nice parting blow, right? Like, like I've reduced our relationship to this now, like, or you have, or, you know, like this is, yeah, I like it. So he is taking her back to her house to drop her off, and there's music playing inside. Uh, Jim looks in through the window, and Patrick is there. That loud music, I have to say, I thought, oh, this is this is threatening, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is an ambush. If you're going to ambush a blind person in their home, mm-hmm. you would have loud music playing uh, to take away whatever ability to have to. Them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess threatening in a different way because it's just Patrick. <laughs> Um, Megan's not happy, of course. He's supposed to be laying low. He's in danger. He starts off with, like, just making some just, like, terrible wisecracks. Yeah. But then shifts pretty quickly to, like, I want to tell you that Molly's doing much better, by the way. Um, and that he talked to Gennady on the car phone and made some assurances and it's all going to blow over. He's never going to harm anyone I care about ever again. It's all going to be behind us. We're all alive and life is worth celebrating. And he, cause he's wrapping presents. Like, yeah, let's have a party. He got Megan a chieftain's CD and is yes. listing all the songs that she will like off of it. And she just has this great delivery of this, of being like, you don't mind if I don't listen to this right now, Patrick, right. <laughs> like, like, come on. M M who was watching this with me had this great note that there is a f- stark fashion divide mm. in the nineties. And he's sitting on the early part of that one. Patrick is Patrick is pre grunge. Mm-hmm. He's wearing this long sleeve, not buttoned down, but long sleeve shirt that's tucked in to stonewashed jeans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he has an earring, right? Has, yeah. Like, yeah. The one little earring. Yeah. yeah. And it's very like, pre-grunge it's a 90s what we would maybe call normcore yeah yeah before that term existed (laughs) it's what a dad wears but like a cool dad yeah exactly (laughs) so uh but like but at the time right so this is filmed in 95 Mm -hmm. so at the time this was already out of date yeah yeah, just barely out of date Mm -hmm. yeah anyways uh there's your little fashion <laughs> topic for this episode. Well, you know how we like our fashion. So Jim leaves. Mm-hmm. Well, he says everything's okay, and I apparently am not having a relationship with Megan, so I'm out. Yep, yep. He goes home, he's watching baseball, and here's where I note, all right, there's a half hour left to go in this movie. Yes. <laughs> what unpleasantness is in store? <laughs> I, I mean, like, yeah, I was like... Still on edge from when he brought the groceries into the cabin. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, Jim's about to get ambushed, right? Mm-hmm. He's going home. That's not a safe place. And he is. But what he's going to get ambushed by mm. is solitude. Oh, our feelings. Yeah. And this is like a real solid, like, three-act structure with like exactly one third one third one yeah yeah (laughs) at the 60 minute mark we are going into the third act of this of this story but yeah he is he's ambushed by solitude he takes his fishing pole out to the pier and we have some good solid rockford files harmonica 
Yeah, oh, very sorrowful. As he makes a single cast, but his heart clearly isn't in it. And we kind of zoom out and and kind of see him standing underneath one of the lights as waves crash under the pier, and he just looks out to sea. Hence the title of the episode, Night Fishing. Indeed. <laughs> we go from there to the next day where Jim is at a driving range, and he's <laughs> he's making a couple swings. Our two Russian Martian heavies just walk up, grab him straight up at gunpoint, and just start walking him away. He's like, hey, what's going on? Those golf clubs cost me a thousand bucks. You know, they march him out of the place. At some point, he does call like, hey, someone call the police. And just nobody. Nobody answers. There's an interesting bit with um, we get subtitles for them talking on their. Yeah. On uh, their radios. Mm -hmm. And they're like Wolfhound. It's in code. I spent a little time thinking about that because I was like, what? I feel like this is really meant to for us as the audience to just cement that these guys are probably ex-KGB. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, they're not, like, mob. Yeah. But, like, the background of these guys is this more military-style yeah. organization. Yeah. Which explains the next scene to some degree as well. So they take Jim to a recording studio. You know, I was like, huh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this particular twist... Uh, feels very cannel to me. This feels like yeah. a, <laughs> like a kind of out of left field, but actually mm-hmm. totally makes sense. Stephen Cannell style, uh, weird, memorable bit. But they take him to a recording studio, throw him into the studio part where mm-hmm. you know the musicians would be. Boris, our our torture aficionado, uh, runs up the faders and is blasting just white noise. Yeah. It is very loud for us watching to tell us yeah. it's very loud. It is not painfully loud because it is television that we're supposed to be enjoying. <laughs> but, you know, the reaction of Jim, you know, is that it is uh, incredibly loud in there. After a minute, um, they toss Megan in and she's totally panicked. Yeah. As she would be. Right. Yeah. Very, very strong um, work here uh, in in this moment. Jim runs over and like grabs her. He's like, you're, you know, you're with me. We're in this whatever. But she's totally disoriented. Gennady makes his appearance. They bring down the noise so he can talk to them from the booth. This is white noise. In six to eight hours, you cannot organize your thoughts or walk for a while. You can't do that to her. If you can't even keep her balance if you can't hear. I know how you feel. That's why she's here. One of you will decide to help me. It is time I need Patrick. Mm-hmm. And wants to know where he is. And they don't know anything. But And he just says, in a few hours, I will know what you know. And cut from there. <laughs> so there is something kind of weird. Not weird, but kind of like particularly unpleasant about Kennedy wanting to know things and just assuming they're being kept from him when they actually do not know what he wants, you know? Uh, yeah, I think the the way that one, that one line is delivered, to me, it, it gave me the impression of him. It's not like, I will know the things that you will know, but it's, I will know what you may or may not know. Sure, sure. If you don't know anything, then I'll know for sure. And if you do know something, I'll drag it out of you. He's such... Like, again... Good Wrath of Khan vibes. Mm -hmm. Like, really, really uh, a good menacing villain. And the contrast is good because he's like, his affect is kind of like, I have to do this. It makes me sad that I have to go to these lengths. While Boris is gleeful. Yeah. 
you know, he's pumped that he gets to like do these terrible things to people. Koblitz gets to be the, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The reluctant hero of his own tale, right? right like, right. like I'm doing this for the greater good. Mm-hmm. If you only, you would cooperate. Uh, it definitely has the feeling of like, I guess David Chase wrote it. So at some point, mm-hmm. David Chase must have been in a music studio <laughs> and just thought, mm-hmm. what if I had like a scene where they were torturing somebody with the, you know, this would be a, a nice setup for that or, yeah. or, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Memorable. Yeah, definitely. We cut this, this <laughs> tension by going to Angel with a uh, poorly suited seeing eye <laughs> wire terrier of some kind. Yeah, yes. Wearing dark glasses outside a casino. We see he has clearly decided to run this con, but he's not really chosen a good spot. Yeah. This is a total comic relief. Mm -hmm. The setup, you can see this start with way back when when Angel was power washing Jim's wall, when they were having coffee. Yeah. And Jim was describing an incident in which Megan was uh, handed. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. I think it was like a $50 bill or something like that. Yeah, like uh, when she was in Vegas for a conference or something. Yeah, yeah. So the story that Jim was trying to say right. is, mm-hmm. here's a woman with pride. Here's a woman who uh, wants to be able to take care of himself. And it's humiliating that this happens. And the lesson the angel takes, it's like, I hear you, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. I can get $50 if I stand outside a casino as a blind man. Right, right, right. And right, that's right, yeah. so angel. He hears someone approaching and says, excuse me, am I close to the public library? <laughs> and this woman just goes, this is a gambling casino and walks away. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's not even a good con. Um, we go back to the uh, recording studio. Boris like fell asleep and then mm-hmm. got up and left, you know, for whatever reason. Jim sees the the guy who's cleaning the Russian club. Yeah. is also cleaning the studio, uh, which I'm now realizing, I guess, places the studio at the club. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing, too. Jim's play is he flashes. He gets his attention, mm-hmm. flashes money at him and then writes a note to get Mr. Festa at L. Jim. <laughs> bring him here. And he pushes the note and the money under the door. And then the guy who we established earlier, you know, doesn't speak English, takes the money. We see him counting it in front of Jim. Mm -hmm. And it is left very unclear about whether he understood slash will, you know, follow up on Jim's plan. This is a Hail Mary pass. Yes, it's great. It's a a good callback to the language barrier they had before, Mm -hmm. where they literally cannot speak to each other because of the soundproof glass. Mm -hmm. My notes are... I'm like, have you no experience with Angel? Like, why are you giving this person all the money up front? Don't. Uh, all right. All right, Jim. Well, again, it's, <laughs> you, it's yeah, it's a real, you know, it's a real last ditch move. Yeah. And, you know, he's been under this white noise for a right. bit. Right. Yeah. He's probably not thinking straight. We go back to the casino where a couple of youths on skateboards <laughs> uh, hassle Angel. And then one of them is like, hey, you were here yesterday. And Angel has all these like responses one of them says like that's not the kind of like what kind of seeing eye dog is that they don't have that kind of leash or whatever that kind of harness he's like it's a french one (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's so quick with the responses that make no sense then yeah but they hassle him and then i mean they're mean to him like they are not heroes here yeah yeah but one of them like pushes him and his glasses fall off and he kind of stumbles away and they go hey this dude's a fake and they start chasing him so 
Angel gets his comeuppance, I guess, and is chased yeah. away from the casino by youths on skateboards. Back at the studio, Jim, so the two goons are back. Jim sees them both look up startled, and one of them runs out. And then, uh, what was his name? Johnny Zepps. And yeah. then he sees Johnny Zepps just walk in, shoot the other one, and leave. Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, guess that's, uh, guess that worked. Of course, we've got all just the white noise going, right? Yeah, like, yeah. That's the like the the score for this point is just the yeah. the muted white noise when we're outside the booth or when we're in the booth, and then the loud white noise when we're inside the yeah the, the room. I love this because it it just has this like okay, it looks like Jim's plan is going to work. Uh oh, Jim's about to witness a murder. Uh, that guy just killed him in cold blood. Maybe Jim doesn't want to attract Johnny Zepp's <laughs> attention. Right, right. Things are changing. We don't know if it's for the better. Jim then uh, grabs a mic stand and starts swinging at the glass. Um, His first attempts go nowhere. And then he just tries a different window. Yeah, I don't know what the... And that one shatters. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, it works. It works. I guess he wouldn't have gone for it earlier because the goons were there, like, watching him. So he gets Megan. They get out. Uh, They uh, hear shots being exchanged. And then they see Festa. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who's like behind like a bank of like lockers or something turns kind of half points his gun sees that it's jim and goes like rolls his eyes and then like jerks his head like get you know get out of here <laughs> yeah go professor get out of here <laughs> in the background we hear him yell i want my 18 million you son of a bitch <laughs> yeah <laughs> exit italian mob that's the last we see of festa and johnny zepps <laughs> yeah <laughs> So that whole thing feels very chase as opposed to, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's uh, good. It's, it was good. Very yeah. good. And it has, a, it has an appropriate amount of levity, I think, to kind of try and to balance out some of the very serious yeah. um, stuff that's been going down. There's a, a there's like a nice justice to it all too, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I mean, like it's set up. Uh, we know that Fest is looking for um, Koblitz, but also... Koblitz has this whole thing like you put me in a corner, so I have to do this to you. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you, now you just put Jim in a corner, right? Right. And now Jim has to do got, the thing. Got to do it to you. Yeah. Got to do it. Yeah. It's a uh, it's a mob justice. It's good stuff. We go to uh, Megan's house. Buddy is there. Buddy is okay. <laughs> Yay! I, I was saying earlier how there's a good like accessibility showcase mm-hmm. in this. So I think they know the who and the what, but it's like why? Like why is he so? focused on patrick like why right. is this, this seems much elevated over like my girlfriend doesn't have a job because of you yeah so they go to her computer to look up anything they can find about him in the university archives mm-hmm. and her computer uses a text-to-speech thing for her to use it and it's great because at first i was like oh a 90s computer it has a computer fo- oh of course it does like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. makes total sense. Why am I judging this? <laughs> and it's, I mean, like it's the um, a Stephen Hawking, yeah, voice thing that like we're, we were all familiar with at the time. Mm-hmm. It is one hundred percent feasible. It, it feels like a much more a much more of the moment use of computers than the last time we saw Jim use a computer. Um, like navigating through a weird nineties. This is a computer stuff. I w- I just looked up. This is this is was done two years after Jurassic Park's uh, mm-hmm. computer stuff, which <laughs> it was the weird '90s. This yeah, is a yeah. computer thing. Yeah, 
this i mean the interface i'm sure is made up for this but like mm-hmm. the way that it's navigated and stuff i'm like oh yeah that's how it would work i don't know it's just yeah. that naturalistic touch i felt was very good yeah anyway they find 11 articles they're in russian so it starts speaking the titles in russian she's able to translate it so that it's reading so it shows them on the screen in english but her the program can't read them when they're translated i guess so jim yeah that doesn't quite work but sure (laughs) you know we don't have to read the screen we can hear jim tell us the summary right yeah um so there's a story from 1992 about the hit and run death of a u.s trade representative to russia where kennedy was questioned about it and mm-hmm. it was after a party held by Patrick where Kennedy had attended earlier. Um, I think those are the salient details. Basically, their impression from this story and what they know now is that Patrick must have some kind of smoking gun knowledge about this accident that was probably a murder. Yeah. He's trying to leverage that to get Kennedy to back off. But that's just motivated Kennedy to take him out as a as a mm-hmm. potential, you know weak point in his you know whatever his deal is we go to the station to see becker becker's being very officious he wants Mm -hmm. to see jim i want to talk to you in my office about your behavior the other night and megan tries to ask him a question and he just ignores her yeah she sits down outside his office he brings jim inside his office closes the door and then we see through the window that he's showing jim crime scene photos and it's patrick yeah he is clearly dead yeah. So this whole thing was to kind of insulate Megan from that. Well, he could tell Jim. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's pretty quick, but I, I thought that's a, a strong, like, I don't know. It's, it's a strong scene. That's very both like, it makes sense with all the characters and it kind of flows from everything we know. And it's also like escalates the situation again. It does this neat trick of um, making you as the viewer decipher what's going on. Cause if he just said that Patrick was dead, that would certainly have an impact, right? Like that's an important point in the story and it's an important emotional point for a number of people involved. But instead of doing that, they do it this way and we have to like witness it as uh, bystanders yeah. from the outside of the glass. We don't hear it and we have to infer it from what we see. Mm. It, I don't know. There's like whenever that is done uh, that, that kind of draws the audience in, you're not fed it so you have to put it together and it's not hard to put it together mm-hmm. it's it's not meant to be hard to put together but because you had to do that little bit of work you're drawn into the emotion of it a little bit more than uh, you would be otherwise we used to we used to on our episodes we used to have like little lessons <laughs> to learn about it that's mm-hmm. the the one from that's a good one yeah from this one mm-hmm. we do cut from there to just a shot of Megan's hands running along the coffin at the funeral. Yeah. Which is also very affecting. And then we, you know, have kind of a, a, a short follow-up. Frank invites Jim to come back to the house. Mm-hmm. Jim says that he's going to be going home. Uh, he turns to Megan and says that he's truly sorry about the death of your cousin. Mm-hmm. And so in my notes, I said truly sorry about the death of Patrick because I'm taking notes. But yeah. I remember that he specifically doesn't say his name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about the death of your cousin, a person who mattered to you, you know, yeah. not necessarily like this specific person who I still do, do not think, you know, deserve right. your, your love the way that you did, you know? Yeah. And she is understandably being fairly, is fairly withdrawn, but civil and says, you know, she just says goodbye to Jim. Uh, we have a, a good instance of the theme uh, the mm-hmm. harmonica theme as 
Becker walks up the uh-huh. steps to Jim's uh, deck. He's like, hey, uh, you know, I thought I'd come out, see if I can take you to lunch. And Jim says, what's your problem? <laughs> I have the afternoon free. I, I want to buy you lunch. There's no problem. Inversion of the earlier bit where Jim wants a favor. Yeah. Jim hands him a beer. Becker relaxes with Jim. There's a pause. And he starts talking about the case. Yes. <laughs> Patrick had plane tickets in his pocket. He and his girlfriend were going to leave. L.A. is bigger than both our butts put together. Two Russians from Minsk, Pince, they just find a motel where Patrick is hiding out. And Jim's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> you know, like Jim's, <laughs> I think Jim very intentionally is like, I can't still be invested in this. Yeah. Um, asks about Megan. Jim says it's over. Then it's like, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they go to lunch. Yeah. I love the line, L.A. is bigger than both our butts put together. <laughs> it's, it's very good. And I do love that, like, it's like you said, it's the inversion of the earlier scene where Jim comes to Dennis in the earlier scene and just wants Dennis to do the work for him. And it, Dennis is doing the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, he's like, there's more work to be done here. Yeah. Maybe I can't get it done because of whatever. Like, maybe it's case closed for the, you know, uh, but uh, it wouldn't be. There's a murder. And he's like, Jim could probably get that done for us. So it's good stuff. We go to Jim snoozing on the couch (laughs) and a noise wakes him up. He gets his gun from the cookie jar. But this time it's Angel. Yeah. (laughs) Tying up the dog to Jim's grill. Jim yells at Angel. Angel runs away and Jim takes a shot into the air. (laughs) Yeah, I know. This That is maybe the most shocking moment of this whole episode. But yeah. Angel falls over and then starts yelling, my hands. I scraped my hands. (laughs) And Jim wants to know whose dog is this? Angel's like, I can't I can't keep him in my apartment. You know, I can't leave him at the pound. Jim has a line. Oh, when did you start sharing oxygen with another life form? <laughs> yes, Angel. What is it? The seeing eye scam? He he hustles them in. He says, Angel, this is your dog. And if I ever hear you've given him away, I'm going to feed you his friskies. Then I'm going to break <laughs> your face. Inside, Jim's making Angel get the dog some water. And then he says, "I the, the one thing I wonder is what happens to this dog if you go to jail? In Jim's opinion, he's been mm-hmm. thinking. And he says, Angel looks real good for giving up Patrick, giving up his location to the Russians. And Angel, a lovely line. I didn't twist nobody's cat. (laughs) He's offended you would even think of it. Yeah. Angel is always full of, you know, flim flam. But there's this moment where he's like, this is serious stuff. And I I was not involved. Yeah, yeah. He says that he, he hasn't even seen him since the accident. He didn't know where he was. How could he have given him up to the Russians? And we see Jim have a thing. Mm-hmm. Cut to Frank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think around around when like Becker, the scene with Becker previously was when I was like, I think it was probably Frank. Yeah, yeah. The timing's good. When they cut, my notes just said Jim's onto this. Yeah. Like this is this is it. He is poolside at his place. He's playing with his grandkids, Megan's kids. There's mm-hmm. a great shot of Frank. He had there's like kind of stare. Beverly Hills. There's there's like <laughs> kind of these stairs down the hillside. There's a kind of retaining wall over them. Frank is at the top of the stairs pouring himself a drink. Over the wall, we see Jim just up here behind him. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good shot. He's there to talk to Frank, not Megan. He wants to know if she ever expla- ever expressed any anger over the accident with Patrick. We cut inside to see that Megan can hear them talking. Yeah. And we go back out. Frank says, not at Patrick. 
she was angry about all these other things, but never with him. Um, somehow they were soulmates. She always was able to, you know, see the best of him or whatever. Not like Frank. Frank couldn't help it. He was always hard on Patrick. You saw it. I would set him up and then cut him down. I couldn't help it. He asks him straight out if he told Gennady where Patrick was. He kind of like makes a face like no. Yeah. Or he says no, but he kind of makes a face like what a ridiculous thing to ask of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I have a note here. There's some really intense facial acting here with um, with with Frank. Richard Kiley. Yeah, with Richard Kiley. Like there's a lot of close ups and we see a lot of the thoughts and emotions passing across his face. Yeah. As Jim is confronting him. It really conveys to us the truth of what happened right as Jim is pulling it out of him, like, yeah. verbally. This girl that he loved, it hurt so badly, she couldn't give him what he had coming to him. Patrick hated himself, Frank. <laughs> and Frank does not confirm or deny, but says that Megan... She has never seen her daughter's face. Sons. Daddy? Is he right? Mm hmm. It's like, okay, he totally did this. So, this is when she comes out, asks Frank if Jim is right. How long could we go on? He was so unhappy. So tortured. Oh, God, Dad. Oh, my God. You were his father. The job fell to you. Why me? Oh, that's the wrong question all you can do is keep going and carry what you have to carry but you didn't you didn't daddy you taught all of us to do that and in the end you didn't Megan. <laughs> uh i can't let my kids be around you knowing how you know I, I can't allow them be under your influence she specifically says was i such a disappointment such a horrible tragedy to you that you had to murder. Because I don't feel like that, Daddy. I don't feel like I'm a tragedy. Yeah, it's a great line. And his other daughter rejects him in this moment, too. This is the nadir of Frank here. This is, yeah. The scene ends with, with Megan just walking away from all of them. She mm-hmm. doesn't have Buddy with her, and she's so she turns, she walks, she clearly knows the house. Right. Thing. It's, a, it's a great physical moment where she's walking away and she's just using her hands to, like, you know, feel along the wall. And she kind of almost bounces off a little, you know, out, yeah, pushed portion and she gets around it and keeps walking away. It's very much, it's like she walks away without wanting or needing any of them to help her. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be part of this anymore, and I don't need any of you. I'm mm-hmm. off on my own, and it's very it's it's poignant and strong, I think. So yeah, yeah. Well, Frank did it. Frank did it. <sighs> Frank is bad. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh it's a good scene. It fulfills the expectations that were built, and then goes even farther. <laughs> There's a great moment in the scene where the kid draws his grandfather's attention. Mm-hmm. And just kind of like a look at me, look at me kind of moment. And he's on a diving board over the pool and he he pretends to be shot and fall in the water, mm-hmm. uh, which is like, you know, whatever. It's kids playing. But with this particular conversation in the context of all of this and what happened to his uncle, it like everyone else is just like. That heightens the tension for all of them. 
Yeah. Completely unconsciously, you know, the, yeah. the, the son, like, he doesn't know. He doesn't, yeah. I actually, in the moment, was like, oh, that's kind of a little much, but as an audience member, like, that's kind of like putting a hat yeah. on a hat a little bit, like, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. pretending to be shot. But as you described it, I think I'm realizing that the effect is for the characters. Frank, the, there's just this thing where it's like, that that's with you now. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, you did this thing. You did this horrible thing. We do have a couple more scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Dennis is joining Jim at a motel where Frank said the Russians contacted him from. Mm-hmm. The captain kicked Jim out because <laughs> it's a police matter. And, one of, and, and Boris is indeed registered at this motel. Dennis won't let Jim in, but we kind of, the camera <laughs> kind of follows Dennis and we see Jim kind of following at a remove. Yeah. So these cops are coming in. The captain comes back to talk to, to talk to Dennis. Uh, it's Jack Garner. <laughs> yes. And a wonderful, one of his wonderful little appearances where he says, all right, it's confirmed. I'm going to go give a call to the Russian consulate. And he leaves. <laughs> so it's Dennis's show. Uh, they kind of clear the area, bust into, there's like a bat. It's like a, I guess it's a motel, but it's also like a bathhouse. Yeah, yeah. Dennis opens the door and we see Boris in a bath with a girl and they're drinking champagne. <laughs> Dennis calls his name and he just grabs a like an automatic from, yeah, from under his clothes. Got an Uzi or something, yeah. And starts shooting at the door and Dennis ducks back and there's there's some some cameras cutting back and forth of like Boris shooting and the girl mm-hmm. screaming and running and Dennis biding his time. Mm-hmm. During that time, he was surrounded by other cops, and they swarm and yeah. manage to apprehend our our villain without anyone getting hurt. I really, for a minute, I really thought that he was just going to be like gunned. The cops down. were just going to shoot him down. Yeah, yeah. But it was ninety six, so mm-hmm. that was not the assumption at the time. I mean, even the 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 location implies it because you mm-hmm. you you really want to just drop a bunch of red dye in that jacuzzi. Yeah, yeah. But not for that'd be a little much for the Rockford Files, I, I suppose. Uh, they get him down. They ask where Koblitz is. Uh, he's he's flying to Moscow. <laughs> Dennis sends the cops to check out the area, you know, see if there's anyone else fleeing or whatever. So it's just him. And then he calls in Jim. He's like, Mr. Rockford. <laughs> yes. Jim and Dennis and Boris. Not only have you used methods of torture against several citizens, including a visually impaired woman, but just now you assaulted Mr. Rockford over a minor altercation concerning your shower sandals. What? 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 Where's your hypodermic needle now, huh? (laughs) And then Dennis leaves, and Jim gets to have his two-fisted comeuppance over... This uh, this guy who has literally been torturing him the yeah. entire episode. An egregious abuse of power that you 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 love to see. Like you just <laughs> we see. And so Dennis is like standing outside <laughs> the door. We hear the meaty smacks from inside yeah. <laughs> as Rockford wreaks his revenge. One of the other cops comes up and is like going to go in the door. <laughs> and Dennis is like, we are searching the area. <laughs> And like yes. sends him off and then looks at his watch. It's like he's he's giving Rockford exactly some amount of time. Yeah, right? exactly. Then, yeah. You don't love to see it because, as you say, egregious yeah. abuse of power. But at least Jim got his own back. Yeah. Yeah. We love to see that. And we go to our final scene of the movie. Jim is putting his feet in a bowl of ice. He smiles at Rocky's picture. His <laughs> phone rings. He sighs. He gets up. He goes crosses the room, answers the phone. 
It hangs up. He goes back to his couch, puts his feet in the ice, gets his newspaper, gets his glasses. Phone rings again. He sighs. He stares at the phone. He lets the machine get it. It's Megan. Mm-hmm. It was her just now as well. She's not going to Atlanta. She needs to pull herself together. And she says, I need to talk to somebody. I need to talk to you. Call me if you want to. And then we freeze frame on Jim's smile as he hears this welcome message. <laughs> now that all of the unpleasantness is over and maybe he can move on to something more uplifting with this uh, rediscovery of this, uh, this this person from his life. A good old-fashioned freeze frame on the smile. A good old-fashioned freeze frame on the smile. That you do love to see. Yes, that you do. My notes on that very final scene are, uh-oh, Jim, get out of there. Because remember, <laughs> as I said at the top of the episode, I was under the impression it was going to take two hours, and we still had a half hour left. <laughs> so that was yeah. the most terrifying hang-up ever and then mm-hmm. with the second one i was like oh all right and then and then like as it was approaching the freeze frame on the smile i thought to myself should they just freeze frame on a smile and end this episode here you and david chase on the right wavelength exactly end of movie congrats <laughs> we did it we did it we're six out of, six out of eight <sighs> yeah so this is clearly a long enough episode, so I don't think we need to uh, spend too much time going over anything else. But was there any other particular bits you wanted to make sure to highlight before we get out of here? No, I think we, we nailed it all. I thought it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed. Uh, I like this one a lot. Yeah. The IMDb reviews are very split on this one. There's a lot of high oh, ones yeah. and a lot of low ones. And uh, Weird. it really seems to be whether you like the character of Megan or not uh yeah okay the ones that are high are people who i think are probably more where like i'm at and i assume you're at where it's like she's an interesting character she feels real yeah she has good chemistry with jim and so it's like it's an emotional story with some action bits with some Mm -hmm. really high stakes that isn't necessarily action-packed but certainly has has the character relationship stuff at the heart of it, right? Right. And then there is another read, which is this character is someone from Jim's past that he should have, that there's no, it doesn't make sense that he's still interested in her and mm-hmm. she's manipulating him. Ah. She doesn't know what she wants and it's unrealistic that he would be interested in her. Oh, no. <laughs> I feel like that read says more about the person than about the show. But, you know, I I can't I can't speak for everyone. If that's your reaction, that's right, right. that's your reaction. Uh, but, yeah, that's not what I see in this show, in this in this movie. Um, I see the well-rounded characters with a lot of the, the humor and the wit that we've come to expect, but also some of the melancholy from all the accumulated years of all the things that have gone on in both of their lives. Yeah. Highlighted by this tragedy that they're in. Right. Because it is a tragedy. It's a tragic yeah. tale. At some point, we'll have to do our, you know, power ranking of the movies. I guess we need to finish watching them. But this one definitely feels the most real, I think, in my memory. Yeah, this one feels like just like a, a slightly longer episode or uh, maybe even like a two-parter. Yeah, if it weren't yeah. for the fact that, like you said, it was a very solid three-act. You know, you, it's hard to take a three-act thing and turn it into two parts, right? I think if we re-looked, re you know, looked at it with that in mind, there's probably a natural place where you would break it. Yeah. Um, for, for being in two things. But yeah, it it didn't feel forced into the movie format. Yeah. It felt like a story that this was the natural fit. Yeah. And then you could do that in two 45-minute 
episodes or one long movie. So, but yeah, I guess at some point we'll have to go back and review all of our feelings about the other movies. But uh, this was a fun one. And Mm -hmm. now we have a good launching point for our next couple of episodes to go visit the original, (laughs) the OG Megan Doherty character. Yeah, I'm excited. And see whether our read on it is, you know, see how well our read on it stands. All right. Anything else? I don't know. I think that's it. Um, We've earned our 200 for the day. Mm -hmm. A thing that we still say sometimes. Yeah. Join us again next time Mm -hmm. where we... Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) We will be back next time to go back to the 70s and talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.